Hello, and welcome back to the Baseball Trade Values Podcast. My name is Joshua Iverson, and I am the associate editor of BaseballTradeValues.com, joined, as always, by founder and owner John Bitzer. John, what a couple of weeks this has been. Oh, my gosh. Spring has sprung. So only so our last podcast, we were ranting about the lockout, right, and how frustrated we were. And the script is completely flipped. <laughs> and now it's crazy. It's bonkers. And it's fun. Yay. Yeah, maybe not the ideal timing there on their, on our end. We had our last podcast episode, I believe it was ended up being three days before the new CBA was agreed to. And mm. since we do our kind of every other week thing, that means we have a whole week and a half of this mayhem transaction chaos to <laughs> to kind of recap as best as we can um as well as we we want to at least touch on what happened with the cba i mean we've been ranting about it for the last few episodes now and i guess we kind of got to touch base on where things ended up here um as far as this episode goes we're going to be prioritizing the trades because we are baseball trade values um, so we're going to be prioritizing the trades there's a couple free agents we definitely want to touch on um and we will hopefully you know, depending on how time goes this time, we might get to some more free agents at the end. But knowing us, I wouldn't hold my breath on that one. <laughs> um, but uh, we, we might look into getting to some of those free agents in later episodes, especially as things start to slow down. We get into the season, you know. Uh, we definitely want to... There, there's a lot that needs to be covered here. There's a lot to talk about. So much has happened. <laughs> but we're, we're, we're prioritizing right now. Um, another thing I want to preface with right now is that uh, we are recording this on Saturday the 19th um, at about 3 o'clock Eastern time. So we, I, I am personally going to be monitoring Twitter throughout the entirety of this episode because there are more moves impending. Um, free agents are a little bit whittled down at this point. All that's left really on the top of the market are Story, uh, Johnny Cueto, Michael Conforto, uh, Jorge Soler, not not a whole lot beyond those guys, but two big trade chips feel like they're going to drop any minute now. But then again, I I would have said that the last two days as well. Um, Sean Manaya and Frankie Montas are still on the A's. Sean Manaya is slated to start tonight's spring training game for the A's. I'm actually attending that game, and I do not expect to see him pitch tonight. I would be <laughs> shocked. Um, but it feels like something's going to happen there, so I'm going to be keeping an eye on Twitter for that, and uh, maybe we'll have some breaking news in the middle of the episode today. Uh, but that's just kind of the context of where we are at as far as the timeline, so just in case anything breaks in between now and when you're listening to this episode. All right, so let's right. get started with the CBA itself. Now, we don't want to spend too much time on this. This has been talk talked about, written about like crazy. Um, we, we are <laughs> the last people to get to the updated CBA because of kind of our scheduling stuff. So we're not going to dwell on it too long. You've heard everything, I'm sure. Uh, but John, right before kind of the transaction freeze really ended, he put up an article explaining how the new CBA is going to affect trade values um, and some of the main changes that could impact trade values, uh, some of the changes that we decided to make, the ones we held off on. And this is especially important to kind of go over again now a week later after all these moves and we can kind of look at it with the benefit of hindsight and say all right well we predicted that this might have a change but we decided to hold off on it and now it looks like maybe we should have made a change so mm -hmm. uh, i'm just gonna let john kind of recap the main things that he pointed out in that article and then we can talk about some of the things that uh, we will likely be changing going forward 
Yep. So um, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but the first one I'll point out is the minimum salary was raised uh, to 700000 uh, starting this year and then moving up from there. That has a minor effect on trade value because, as we know, we're all about surplus value, right? So the estimated performance value minus the cost. So if the cost goes up, the surplus is going to go down a little bit. In this case, not too much. I mean, we were rounding up to 0.6 million in our model because that's the way it works out in the previous CBA. And now it's going up to 0.7. So, if, you know, three pre-arb years, that's a difference of 0.3. Uh, yeah, it's minor. It's it's not a big deal. Um, it's good for the players, but it's not a big change on the in the trade value. The one I really wasn't expecting to be a change, but we did see an effect, particularly with the Chris Bassett trade, was the QO system. And now in our model, we had anticipated in the old QO system or existing one that, you know, if a team had a player for the entire year and they offered them a QO at the end of the year, they and, and you declined as often happens, then that team gets a draft pick. So we embedded the value of that draft pick in certain players' values, particularly the ones that only have one year left of control and ones that in our in our models seem like they were QO candidates. So Chris Bassett was one of those. We saw that he went for under what we had anticipated and we thought, hmm, I wonder why. Oh, because we added 4 million to his trade value because we had anticipated there being a draft pick. Well, that whole thing is pretty, it's, it's up in the air. It's not certain yet, but based on the CBA, it seems likely that it's going to go away. And if you're the acquiring team, you can't really bank on it. And that's the most important point. You know, you don't want to trade for idea a, a guy with that assumption and then have the, you know, when they decide on the, it's tied to the international draft, uh, when when they decide that that's, you know, in or out, you know, you, it's probably going to be out, but we don't know. <clears throat> but they're probably going to get rid of the QO system. So you don't want to have to overpay based on that assumption. And so any other players that we thought might be QO candidates with that draft pick value attached, we've gone ahead and removed them. So Sean Manaya went down a little bit. He was another one, a couple other guys. So that's probably the more significant change. Um, some of these other ones really weren't significant. Like a lot of people are talking about the DH in the National League. We have seen no evidence that that's an issue. Uh, we just saw Luke Voigt traded and it seemed like a fair deal. Um, I don't, it didn't really cause a spike in, in players who seem like they're DHs, although we'll talk about Castellanos in a moment. Maybe there's a little bit there. Uh, but for now, it doesn't seem like the market is clamoring for DH types any more than they would normally do so. So it's too soon to tell, but you know, we're sort of, you know, waiting and seeing on that one. Um, and there's nothing really else that we see um, that's going to affect trade value in the new CPA. I think at the deadline, perhaps with the playoff expansion of 12 teams, you'll see obviously a couple more teams who might might be in the mix. And, you know, those, they'll become uh, buyers instead of kind of sitting back. So that could have an effect on the trade deadline, but it's not going to really matter right now. Uh, banning the shift will have an effect, I think, but that doesn't kick in until 2023. So it's probably not going to be much of an issue right now. But we do anticipate, you know, we can see hitters like Joey Gallo, who gets shifted on all the time and has to sort of, you know, pull the ball over the or, or <clears throat> you know, launch the ball over it. Maybe he'll get more line drive hits. Uh, pitchers who benefit from the defensive value of the shift, maybe they'll you know, they won't give, give up as many hits to that side. They might need to change their approach. Uh, glove first, second baseman like Colton Wong, who's been penalized because, you know, it reduces the value of second base defense in particular. 
um, he might become a little bit more value, but it's probably too soon to tell because that doesn't kick in for another year. So I'm not going to touch on all of them, but I think those are the big points. Yeah, I have some some things I'd like to say about some of the individual changes and everything, but for right now, I'm going to bite my tongue on those because <laughs> we have our work cut out for us this episode, and maybe we can get deeper in on the CBA sometime later. I don't know. Um, but just in general, we kind of took uh, we took a very conservative approach to making changes uh, as a result of the new CBA right out the gate. Um, you know, there, like you mentioned, just a little thing like the minimum salary being raised, like obviously that's going to have an, it's going to directly affect values, but not by anything significant enough to, for us to put in the hours that it would take to adjust every single pre-arbitration player by those little ditzels of a, of a value. Um, so there, there's things that, that obviously directly led to change. Uh, but we kind of laid back and wanted to see what the market would tell us on a lot of these other ones. And I think just in the week since, it's it's told us some interesting things. And, and I think we're ready to uh, to move on some stuff. Yeah. Um, so kind of separate from the CBA, we did notice a pattern. Um, we thought, okay, um, when trades are made for kind of lower rated pitchers in particular around sort of if you follow the 2080 scale around the 40 level um they were consistently low and you know it, it had been bugging me for a while but then josh rightly so pointed out the other night like hey are we too low on those guys and because you know there was and then i went back and looked at our trade log we keep a record of everything and sure enough pretty much every time one of those guys was traded we were too low and so it got to the point where, in, in the most recent example, was in the Matt Chapman trade, where um, Zach Logue was one of those guys. And, you know, um, there are many other examples, but that was one that said, hmm, should we look at that? And so I looked at it, and yep, <laughs> we were too low. And the, the genesis of that is that when we first started the model, we had a sort of, you know, we used, you know, we cited on our website that we used a lot of the prevailing research, which was published on Fangraphs, but it only goes so far. And so we had to kind of, you know, estimate when it gets down to the lower levels, what those fair values might be. As it turns out, we were a little too low on the pitching side. And when you think about it, it makes perfect sense that at a certain low level, pitchers and hitters kind of converge again. The The main idea is that pitchers have more risk than hitters. And so at the higher levels, you're more likely to get a little, it makes sense to have more value on the hitter side than it is on the pitcher side because they don't have as much risk. But then we get to the lower levels, pitchers can be useful in another sense because you know, they have relief risk, but that also gives them a floor. They don't just bust, maybe they become relievers. So uh, long story short, we're, we've increased the value of some of those lower level, lower rated pitchers. Um, and it's not a big change, but you know, it's, you'll see it a little bit of starting to filter through on the site with some of the, the teams that may be in the market for to make trades uh, and then may have some of those chips to sell. So. You know, it's basically a change from like one to two, in some cases, two to three. Um, but that can add up. I remember back in 2019 when we were still kind of a young site and the Dylan Bundy trade happened between Baltimore and the Angels. And it was just for four lower level pitchers and it was kind of off. And I wondered why at the time, but I didn't really follow up on it. And now, you know, now we have a lot of data to say, okay, we were a little too low on those guys. If those guys had been bumped up a little bit more, that would have been that that deal would make perfect sense and many others also. So that's the main change I wanted to talk about. The other one was 
we needed to account for inflation on the prospect side. Um, again, we were sort of playing it conservatively um, because you know the pandemic happened and we weren't sure what was going on. Uh, as a whole with baseball, we use kind of the QO system, you know, what, what value they put on that as kind of a, a marker for inflation. And it generally is about 3% a year, as is, you know, the long-term inflation rate in general in the economy. Um, but we were playing it a little too safely. And I think in general, we're starting to see some prospect values that are, you know, when you, when you have a trade between veterans and prospects, it might, if it feels a little bit light, that's another reason probably why is we didn't adjust for inflation. So those two changes, um, will bump up the value of prospects. The inflation one will bump up everybody's by about 3%. Not a big change. A guy who's worth 10 will be worth 10.3, for example. But, you know, in a package deal, it might be significant to close the gap a little bit. And the second one is those sort of 40-ish rated pitchers will go up from like 1 to 2 or 2 to 3. And that will be a little bit more meaningful in some deals you'll see. So we've just started to, to input those changes in anticipation of some other trades happening. We'll see if we get a little closer on those. Yeah, as we get into the trades that have happened and discussing where the values kind of ended up, um, it, it's it's a small sample. There haven't been an overwhelming number of trades for us to kind of check things off on, and and there's a whole bunch of different factors at play here. But there was a little bit of we had a little bit of concern, and we and we got some concern from from followers of the site, from from Twitter followers, saying like, hey, the it seems like a couple more of these are getting rejected than usual. And, and a couple of them, you know, have their own one-off explanations. But uh, things like these uh, changes that we've made, we think, help explain some of the other gaps in values. And, and we're going to get into them individually. Uh, we, we very, very much do not believe that the system is broken or anything like that. Um, it's, it's a very weird time right now because there was so much we didn't know going into this week of how the cba would impact things and also just i I think at least a little bit of this can be um can be somewhat attributed to the weird situation of you know everybody's working on a clock here and it's not like it's not like the trade deadline where teams know all season exactly what day this deadline is going to be and so they kind of plan out ahead and so, yeah, they're starting these trade discussions in June or whatever, and they're obviously far apart then, but they kind of have the idea of, okay, we need to be starting to narrow things down by the end of July. Whereas here, it's like nobody knew for sure if the CBA was going to get agreed to when it did or if there were going to be, you know, another couple months of that or, or whatever. Nobody knew when the season was going to start. Nobody knew when they were going to be allowed to make transactions. And so you kind of just throw everyone, all the free agents, all the teams, everybody into this system and say, all right, you got a week. Spring training games are starting soon. <laughs> go go have at it. Good luck. Um, yeah. it's, it's a market ripe for at least some inefficiency as teams prioritize. All right, let's just get the deal done yep. over. Let's haggle and make sure we get that last couple million of value out of this guy or whatever the case may be. So yep. I, I, there's, there's a whole lot of reasons that explain it. And I think uh, I think these adjustments that we've made come a lot of the way there, but uh, part of it is just this this wacky situation that we're in, this unprecedented, hopefully never going to happen again <laughs> type thing where everybody has to scramble and, and get their team in order within a week and a half. And as we can see, a lot of teams still haven't quite finished doing that. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, all good points, and I I. I would underscore them as well. So we're in an unprecedented situation where they're trying to cram a whole bunch of detail deals in a short time frame. Now our model assumes 
kind of rationality, right? That more or less most of the front offices are acting rationally. But when you compress all of this pressure into like a week, you know, there's going to be some variance. And so, um, you know, they just need to get the deal done, especially with teams who have signaled their positions, you know, um, where leverage may be more or less depending on the team in the situation. So we're seeing higher variance, and a lot of it is attributable to just the compressed time frame, as you mentioned. And I think it also points to the fact that, you know, there were some rumors that, oh, back channel texting is going on during the lockout. I don't think that doesn't seem to have happened. It seems like, okay, everybody, they sort of woke up from their nap, and now they're all just sort of, you know, exchanging ideas. And so I think I think that's adding to the chaos um, because they weren't actually doing that. Otherwise, you would have seen a whole bunch of detail, uh, a whole bunch of deals in the first two, three days. And that didn't happen. They've been playing out in, in albeit in this compressed time frame, but they've been playing out. Thank you for putting that together a lot more clearly than than I did. Um, I, I, w- I will want to add that I think the free agent market played a huge role in kind of even if there were negotiations um if there was talk behind the scenes on trades which they were allowed to do um for a minute i thought that was something i made up but i did see it confirmed a couple places they were allowed to talk trades during the lockout uh teams were uh but i think i might have personally underestimated how big of an impact the free agent market would have on any of those discussions because teams and players treated it like a normal off season where you know X player is waiting for Y player to sign first. So there's more demand for him. And, oh, this team isn't going to trade their guys until a couple of these big uh, free agents at those positions sign. So the other teams are more desperate. Like we saw a lot of that play out just in a much more condensed time frame. And so that's why you have things like, I believe at least, that's why you have things like the A's still hanging on to a couple starters right now. They were seemingly kind of waiting for the market to really dry out on those starting pitchers, and to this point it has. I don't, I don't know what they're waiting for now. <laughs> um, but I think we saw that at a lot of different points, both in the free agent and trade markets, and we can, uh, we can discuss some of those when they come up throughout this episode as we go back through some of these transactions. Yeah, uh, let's do it. Are you ready to jump into those? Absolutely. All right, let's start with just a couple of the free agents. We don't, like I said, we're going to focus on trades. We don't have time to go into all the free agents. I have a running list on my phone, and oh goodness, there are so many names. Um, <laughs> I think I have a feeling there's going to be some broader points we want to raise about, you know, the pitching market, specifically the relief market, things like that. But I think we save that for either end of this episode or for another episode. I just want to talk about a couple of the standout free agents that um, didn't that that signed surprising deals. Let me let me phrase it like that. Uh, we're starting with Chris Bryant to the Rockies, which kind of just stunned everyone in a lot of different ways. So the Rockies signed Chris Bryant. It's a seven-year, $182 million contract with a full no-trade clause, no opt-outs. What? <laughs> this this came out of nowhere. The Rockies, to their credit, it's not like they've traded Herman Marquez or anything this offseason, but... They started out their offseason by not offering John Gray the qualifying offer and then also not pushing hard enough to bring him back, instead letting him walk and go sign with the Rangers on a three-year deal. So that was a weird way to start their offseason. And then after the lockout, they made some small moves. They signed Alex Colomay and uh, Chad Cool. you know, just the kind of the moves you might expect from a team that is a last-place team, knows they're a last-place team, is just going to, you know throw a few million dollars on the free agent market, see if they can flip some of these guys at the deadline. It it looked kind of like the Rockies were 
acting rationally for the first time in a while, at, at least after the lockout. Um, and then they fired their new head of, or they parted ways, excuse me, with their new head of analytics that they had just hired a few months ago. And so that was kind of a, a an uninspiring sign coming out of Colorado. And then like a week later, they agree that they've signed, or they announced that they've signed Chris Bryant to this massive contract. And it, it just, it doesn't make sense. I mean, people have made the, the Nolan Arenado comparisons of, oh, they're still paying Arenado. So if you factor in that money and whatever, then they're actually paying Bryant this much. And it's not that much less than Arenado's contract. What's the deal? What's going on here? Um, I, I just want to bring up uh, Dan Simborski has been tweeting pretty pretty vocally about this deal since it came through. Um, and he's alluded to it being essentially the worst free agent signing in in the history of Zips, his projection <laughs> system. Um, he Bryant does not project to earn to produce the amount of value anywhere near what he's being paid here. It, it's even worse than the Eric Hosmer signing by the Padres, which was notoriously terrible at the time as well. Um, and based on our own values, they, they agree wholeheartedly here. We have Bryant at negative 76.4 million in median trade value. It's, it's 105.6 field value compared to his 182 million salary. So I don't, I mean, there's, there's plenty of rational explanations here. That doesn't mean they're, they're good explanations. It doesn't mean they, they justify this move by the Rockies. There's plenty of explanations here, but I still just don't, I don't get how this was allowed to happen. <laughs> um, yeah. Do you have any, any yeah. insight? Yeah. I, well, I have a guess. Um, so obviously from Brian's point of view, as is always the case with, you know, almost always the case with, with the actual player, they're going for the money. And so clearly this offer was way ahead of anybody else's. So he's going for the money, even though I'm sure he would like to play for a more established winner. He's going for the money. Um, my theory about the Rockies, and I've said it before in previous podcasts, is they are not in the baseball business. They are in the entertainment business. They needed a marketable star. I asked my 11-year-old son the other night <clears throat> after this news broke, hey, um, can you name a player on the Rockies? And he follows baseball very closely. He's like, uh, uh, <laughs> Chris Bryant's now on the Rockies. Oh, okay, there's one. You know, like if you're a family and you want to take your, your you know kids to the game, you're buying tickets who are you buying to see oh now you can buy a ticket for chris bryant and keep in mind you know they make it kind of um, a thing where you know the whole surrounding the restaurants and bars and stuff like that in the area is a thing and then by the way i think dick monford owns a lot a lot of that so he's in the entertainment business and he needed a star so he overpaid for a star they don't think in terms of analytics, as has become very clear now. Bill Schmidt, the GM, came from the scouting ranks. He's not an analytics guy. Dick Monfort is obviously not an analytics guy, to the point where anybody who has an analytics background doesn't seem to last very long in the Rockies at all because they don't jive well with them, which tells you that they're very old school and they don't care about analytics. You know, So throw the numbers out the window if you're Dick Monfort and just, okay, he's a star. I'm going to pay for him so that I can sell tickets. I think that's what it's about. I'll add from Bryant's perspective that he's kind of done it all already. You know, Rookie of the Year, MVP, World Series, that especially such a magical World Series with the Cubs that, you know, maybe, and I don't want to, I'm sure he's a competitor. I'm sure he's completely driven by winning, but maybe 
maybe not as much as some other guys might have been in that situation. And so maybe he's more willing to just go to a nice city, a nice ballpark, somewhere he's going to hit 100,000 home runs because of the the thin air and, and just his profile as a hitter and wear some nice uniforms and just kind of enjoy himself in Colorado and, you know, maybe be more willing to wait out a couple of rough years than a guy like Arenado was where, mm-hmm. you know, he's in his prime and he it's time for him to win. He hasn't won anything and, and he's get, he's itching for that. Um, yep. Yep. So maybe so, that yeah. kind of leads to some of Bryant being comfortable and, you know, the no trade clause and and all of that aspect, no opt outs, all of that part of it. Um, and, yeah. and I 100% agree with you on, on the Rockies side of things. It's just I, I don't I, I see that this helps them in the entertainment side of it. But is is there a goal to, to be competitive again? And if so, how does this help that? <laughs> they no no they obviously don't have a clue and, and dick monford is one of the most um you know hands-on owners probably in the sport and so he doesn't really have a gm pushing back on him he's he's mostly calling the shots himself but he's obviously not a baseball genius so he's winging it i think and that's what everybody's seeing one of my takes was that and i We'll acknowledge that even just a couple days later, it probably wasn't a very good take. <laughs> but one of my takes was that maybe it's because of the expanded playoff, or, or at least, I mean, I don't know if this is like a, a legitimate take, or maybe just I'm trying to put myself into the mindset of Montfort and the other um, Rockies personnel, but maybe they see, oh, there's expanded playoffs now, and the Padres have taken a pretty significant hit. They already had kind of a disappointing off season and then they lose Fernando Tatis Jr. for a few months. And so things are looking a little bit rough there and the giants, you know, they were so great in 2021, but even before some of their moves, you'd think you'd be pretty right to think that that's not super sustainable. They kind of came out of nowhere, kind of overperformed and then they lose Posey. They lose Gosman guys like Crawford are a year older now. So you think, oh, maybe they're not as good. And, you know, the D-backs aren't ready. So maybe, you know, you're the Rockies. You get a little optimistic. You say, hey, we're, we we have a shot at, you know, not being terrible this year. And if we can not be terrible for 162 games, we can push up high enough in this division and maybe squeak into a wild card spot. I can squint and see that. It doesn't, it, it does not come anywhere near explaining the whole John Gray thing. I still have no idea about that one. <laughs> Sell tickets. But, Look, I, I, they're, they're, yeah. my theory holds again. They did not get rid of them at the deadline because they're thinking, oh, now who's going to come to the games if we don't have Story and Gray, you know? And otherwise, the, the team is, no offense to anybody else, on the team, but they're completely anonymous. So, so I think they just wanted to sell tickets in August and September. Uh, I can, I'm telling you, man, that's my theory. I can a little bit see that part of it, but I still don't get the qualifying offer thing with Gray. Yeah, I. I, I guess they just misread the market. I don't know. Um, well, he wasn't but... that good. And even if you look at our numbers on our model, it's not, he, he was a little under what the market, what the, the market would, what a QO offer would be. So that one I'm, I'm okay with. It was the story, you know, one where they didn't give him a QO that made no sense to me. Oh, they, they did give story the QO, right? They just didn't trade him at the deadline. I, I thought they be... didn't. Maybe I'm wrong. Did they? Uh, I don't know. We we will okay. look that up right. as we are recording. <laughs> All right. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's it's kind of our piece on the Rockies. I mainly just wanted to point out, like, the the, the whole point of all that was, 
yes, that was weird. We agree. And yes, our values agree that they paid him a lot more than they probably should have. Um, yeah, almost <laughs> twice as much. Yeah. And it kind of, one last point I wanted to bring up here is it kind of goes back to uh, before the 2021 season. We had Chris Bryant as a non-tender candidate. And we got some pushback on that. And it was because he had had such a rough 2020 and his third year arbitration salary was getting so high. And it, it, it was just hard to see a situation where a team would give up significant talent for a year of that guy at that price. Mm-hmm. And I think that was ended up being spot on. We Obviously, they did not trade him that offseason. And they waited for him to rebuild some value in the first half of... Uh, of 2021 before trading him to the Giants. But even then, he he was pretty good last year, but he was not the Chris Bryant of old. He was not yeah. a super-duper star. And so I think that doesn't bode too well for his, you know, <laughs> the fifth, sixth, seventh years of this deal if he's starting from a position of, you know, he was a three-and-a-half win player in 2021. That's pretty solid. But if, if he's following the aging curve, you know, yes. losing half a win a year or so, that's not looking too great for him in, in the latter part of that deal, or even even pretty early on in that deal. So yep. I think even just looking at it in that perspective, you can see that it's maybe not the uh, the most value conscious of, <laughs> of contracts. Right. All right. And then one player that's somewhat comparable here. Uh, so th- this one broke late last night. Not, not the latest deal that broke last night. We'll get to that a little later. But this one broke late last night that the Phillies are signing Nick Castellanos. It's a five-year contract, $100 million, no opt-outs or anything. And this comes after the Phillies already signed Kyle Schwarber to a lengthy contract. And you, you figure, you know, they said he'd be their left fielder, but you figure he's going to see a lot of time at DH anyway because he's not the best defender. And I believe that was a five-year, $90 million deal. Or was that four mm. years? Uh, some, somewhere in that range. It, it was a sizable contract for Schwarber. And then yeah. kind of this... Four the... years, uh, $79 million. Okay, I yep. pulled $90 million out of nowhere. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, four years, $79 million, So almost the same AAV here as Castellanos, just a year shorter. Um, and you kind of figured like, okay, they got their big bat. They're, they're going to try this whole like not playing defense thing, I guess. Um, <laughs> there, there was a report that came out that... Oh, this is actually this is actually a moderately important um, little stipulation of the new CBA that we haven't discussed yet and that wasn't really widely reported. Um, it changed the way that uh, the, the luxury tax implications of salaries are calculated. Right. I believe it's that when you trade for someone, rather than using their prior AAV as your luxury tax figure, it's their new AAV. So basically, if you if you traded for a guy with three years and 39 million left on his contract and the first two years of that contract and only paid him a few million. So his AAV was like seven or eight. Now that you traded for him, it's kind of treated as a three year, $39 million contract. And so his new luxury tax AAV is 13 million. Right. And so that's the spot that they found themselves in with Kevin Kiermeyer, where the Phillies were kind of brushing up against the luxury tax. And Whereas before he would have been like a, I think it was a seven or $8 million luxury tax hit. Mm -hmm. Instead, he was going to be like 13 or 14 and that would have put them over the limit. And Mm -hmm. they decided that they didn't want to do that for Kiermaier, that that wasn't worth it for them. In addition to the actual money they're paying, in addition to the prospect, they give up whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, So they decided to hold off on that. And and that was kind of where things stood. But then reportedly Bryce Harper pushed pretty hard 
for Nick Castellanos to join the team. And, you know, Dombrowski obviously has the Castellanos connection. We also have discussed in the past how good he is at kind of speaking sweet nothings into the ears of his, his ownership to get them to approve big contracts and going past the luxury tax and whatever. Um, but yeah, at this point, at least, it looks like they've decided to build the whole team out of DH, and uh, we're going to see how, how that goes. They don't really have anyone with a glove there. I, I feel kind of bad for Aaron Nola. You know, the guy just posted a bloated ERA because of bad peripherals, bad defense before him, and then the Phillies said, all right, let's make it worse. Um, it's a beer league softball team, Josh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, speculatively, I wonder if... You know, if this Nick Castellanos deal pushed them over that first luxury tax threshold. So I wonder if now that kind of uh, disincentive is out of the way. They've already passed that. I wonder if it makes it easier for them to go get Kiermaier, which I still believe they absolutely should. Uh, But we'll see about that one. Uh, Castellanos here, though, kind of (laughs) what we're getting to here is that he's also uh, a little bit underwater already from the get-go. And by a little bit, I mean a good chunk, you know, not as much as Bryant, but... We have his field value at 62.6. His salary is 100 million, so he's at negative 33.7 in trade value right now. Um, and you know, part of that you can maybe explain, you know, universal DH. Although <laughs> you, you look at the Phillies, they're a team that even before signing Schwarber, it was like, all right, good, they have some DH guys. You know, Hoskins, Alec Bohm, uh, even you know, get Harper a couple days off, whatever. They they have DH types. And then they sign Schwarber, and it's like, all right, he'll he'll take a lot of DH time, and now Castellanos is in the mix too. And it also doesn't, you know, with with the price being so high, it doesn't appear to be a thing where oh, Castellanos' market came so low because it's so late in the off season, and he wanted to join a team, so they're just going to kind of get the bargain deal here. That's not what it seems like either. Um, I, I do, and the numbers obviously agree. I do very much prefer this Castellanos signing over <laughs> over the Bryant signing. I think. Castellanos has that kind of like raw hit tool and yeah and I think it's going to age well he's going to be one of those guys that hits well for a while and but I I, I'm a little scared of how the fourth year the four years from now how this team's going to look because they're going to have Kyle Schwarber and Nick Castellanos both in their mid-30s Harper getting up there in age two and they're just going to have one DH spot between those three guys um that's going to be something to see in a few years here now um what are yeah. what are your thoughts here on on how this <laughs> happened and what it means yeah well they're going to be a little bit like the yankees in a couple of years with like old guys who can hit you know but not much else you know um yeah no i i thought um i read dan it was dan Zaborski's piece on on this one as well um you know where he said look you know this is an overpay obviously as well but they needed to do it because they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. The rebuild didn't quite take, but they kind of had to pick a direction. And Dabrowski likes to, you know, pay for winning teams. That's his history. And so he's like, okay, I'm going to go for it. So, you know, they decided they've got enough pitching with Wheeler and Nola and others. And they've got, you know, obviously the MVP and Harper. And so they just needed a couple more pieces to see, okay, we got to compete. So, and there wasn't much else they could do um they don't have a great farm so i think they might have i know they talked to the a's about chapman um but there really wasn't a match there because there's there's not a lot of value in their farm um and that may have been the case with other sort of like a center field you know like a brian reynolds or ramon loriano they need a center fielder but those are too expensive they don't have the farm for it so they had to go the 
free agent route. And even though obviously Schwerber and Castellanos you know, are not defense guys, they can at least, there's two ways to win games, right? You either create runs or you prevent runs. And so they're going the create runs route. And, um, you know, and at this point in the market, they're overpaying for, for Castellanos. So, you know, more power to them, you know, and I have to say the players, when they negotiated for that higher CBA level, when it went up from, I think, 210 to 230, you're starting to see the benefit of that because uh, the Padres have been going up against that and the Phillies actually just passed it. So I think there was merit to that. They are, the whole point was to get teams to spend more on free agents and that's what they're doing. So good for them. Um, I have nothing... uh, else insightful to say about this other than you know it's a really competitive nl east you got the world champs and the braves you got steve cohen spending money making the mets better and you've got the phillies now and even well the marlins want to make some moves and the nationals made a little bit of moves but it's really those three teams that i think are competing so it's going to be a dog fight my take is that if the phillies could go back and do it again they would have done it a lot differently um i I still don't know if they would have quite uh, met the price for Starling Marte, who was kind of the only big center field option. And even that's kind of a question mark. I think he's 32, and so you wonder how long he's going to actually keep up out in center um, defensively and and with his speed and everything. Uh, But that's a guy who looks like he would have fit in really well on this team. Uh, if you if you are in the spot of all of the other center fielders are going to cost too much in trade assets, well, what about the guy that just costs you money? So I don't, I don't know if they would have been able to outbid Steve Cohen because that was a pretty hefty contract that Marte got from the Mets. So I don't know if that specifically, but I do think this team really could have used Matt Chapman. And, and although they have a lighter farm and, and it would have hurt them more disproportionately as to as to how it hurt the Blue Jays who ended up getting him. Um, I think that would have really cleared things up here a lot. And, you know, if if your question, it's kind of, it's a similar fit as in Toronto, just a bit more extreme, maybe where in Toronto, it's, uh, you know, they have more than enough offense where if Chapman is just a league average bat, like he was last year, then, oh, well, he's a great defender and we need that. It's kind of the same thing going on here in Philly. And I think, uh, I think if they could go back, they maybe would have pushed another chip in and made that one happen. But I don't know. Speculation, of course. <laughs> um, okay. Let's use that to transition into some of these trades because we got a lot to cover. And as is usual for us, not a lot of time. So <laughs> let's we're going to just go through this kind of chronologically because for some of these, we kind of have to. So let's go way back to the beginning. First significant trade uh, after the lockout was lifted, after the CBA was agreed to, after the transaction freeze was lifted. It was the Rangers acquiring catcher Mitch Garver, who we had at $10.9 million in median trade value, from the Twins in exchange for infielder Isaiah Kiner-Falefa at $8.5 million, and right-handed pitcher Ronnie Henriquez at $1.4. So this one was a match accepted by the model. Um, had us feeling pretty good right out the gate. <laughs> um, let's just let's focus on the Rangers side of this one because we will we'll be getting to what happened on the Twins side of this down the road. Um, I'm sure many of you know, but uh, let's focus on the Rangers fit. Um, I like I like Garver for them. It's not I, I definitely didn't see it coming uh, going going into the offseason, going even into the second half of the offseason or anything. But, you know, the, they're pushing some chips in. Garver comes with two years of control. And so it kind of fits what we've been saying where we aren't sure the Rangers are going to be competitive in 2022. But we think they have a chance in 2023. Well, 
Garver's around for that. And we talked about uh, how Kiner Falefa was looking expendable. Um, obviously, that changed a little bit when Josh Young got hurt. He'll be out most of the season. Um, he was kind of their natural third baseman coming up in the farm. Um, and so then it's like, oh, maybe we just slap Kiner Falefa there. But, you know, he's a he's a glove-only kind of guy. It's less valuable at third base than at shortstop. You kind of want somebody with a bat at third base. So I get it. Expendable for sure. And, you know, the Twins had an opening at shortstop. Uh, but I like Garver a lot for them. They didn't really have a whole lot going on behind the plate. And, yeah, it, he's a guy that they were kind of able to buy low on because he had a rough 2020. And he's been on and off the field a lot, had a lot of injuries. Uh, but when he's healthy, it's pretty clear he's one of the better catchers in baseball um, from an offensive standpoint. And he's a good pitch framer. So I I like the kind of buy low for them. It didn't cost them a whole lot. And it, it's in a position where he, he's a guy you can flip at the deadline or next offseason or even next deadline um, if things don't work out the way you want and you're going to get at least a good chunk of this value back, I think. Yeah. Um, I was a little bit surprised because I wasn't thinking that was their most pressing need because uh, he seemed to like Jonah Heim. But, you know, Heim is not established and you always need two catch- catchers these days. And so uh, it is an upgrade. And um, I, I think... It was a little bit surprising when they moved Kiner Falefa because we talked about how with Young being injured, he would probably slide over to third now that they have Corey Seager. Um, but, you know, it's not it didn't it didn't um, surprise me that much. Um, and at the time, the twins needed a shortstop. So it made sense from their point of view. Um, the model uh, looks it looks fair in the model. I will say there's one small point. I talked about that adjustment for lower level pitchers Enrique's. Henriquez, um, we had at 1.4. With the change, he'd be a little over two, so that would make the ch- trade even closer than it already was. So it feels good from that standpoint. And I will note that since this trade, the Rangers brought in Brad Miller on a two-year deal, $10 million. Um, he obviously plays all over the field, but right now he's projected to be their starting third baseman. They also have Andy Abanez, and they brought in Charlie Culberson back on a minor league deal. Either of those guys could platoon with Brad Miller, and they also just brought in Matt Carpenter on a minor league deal. So adding to kind of their MLB-ready third base options there. Um, and and I, I can definitely see the argument for Garver plus that group of guys being more productive for them than uh, than kiner falefa and Haim and whatever timeshare would have gone on behind the plate. Yeah, and... We'd be remiss if we didn't talk about um, this little uh, interesting story about the MLB Drops Twitter account, if you follow this, that broke a oh, couple yes. of stories about the Rangers in the last couple yeah. days. <laughs> yeah. Do you want to take I'm this? Sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah. And so everybody's like, what? Who's that? Um, and, and those stories turned out to be accurate, you know, and um, to the point where I think it was even Ken Rosenthal citing credit for MLB Drops broke the story. Uh, and then later the uh, Twitter account was deactivated and it turns out, uh, according to reports, uh, it was run by the son of the Rangers hitting coach. So obviously he had some inside information. He probably shouldn't have been sharing it with the world. Um, and so they probably told, probably told him to take it down. But that's what that was. A little amusing side note. That's That last part is news to me. I saw that it was taken down, but that is... That's really funny. Yeah, yeah. The, <laughs> they, uh, they, yeah, hitting coach's son was, was the guy running it. Wow. They, they had some just kind of general league-wide reports that, you know, it was just, oh, this guy's interest, this team's interested in this guy, and so it wasn't anything that you can either really, like, confirm or deny. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, they had the Brad Miller 
uh, signing they had. Do they have the uh, the Garver trade, or was that? I think that was. Yeah, uh, I don't think one so. of those. Yeah. Silly accounts. <laughs> um, but they had Brad Miller. They had Garrett Richards signing there. Um, and one of their most recent things was about the Rangers having some interest in tre- Trevor Story and maybe some traction there. So uh, we'll we'll maybe see where that one goes. See if he ruined that one, <laughs> and that's why he got <laughs> deactivated. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I, I think I think we've gotten that one handled pretty well. Uh, let's move All on right. to the next significant deal. This one was that aforementioned Chris Bassett trade. So at the time. It was it was the Mets acquiring Chris Bassett, who at the time we had 17 million in median trade value. Um, that's from the Athletics. In exchange, the A's get two right-handed pitchers. The first one, J.T. Ginn, who was the Mets' second-round pick, uh, came back off Tommy John surgery and looked pretty good. We have him at 10.3 million in trade value, and then Adam Aller at 0.7 million. He is 27. He was added to the uh, Mets' 40-man roster at the start of this offseason to protect him from the Rule 5 draft, which sadly never came to pass. (laughs) We didn't mention that earlier. The Rule 5 draft was canceled for this year, sadly. Um, But Aller was their minor league pitcher of the year. He had a velo bump, made some changes, and turned turned from, you know, a career, you know, a journeyman. He was picked up by the Giants in the minor league phase of the Rule 5 draft a couple years ago. So one of those guys that just kind of bounces around, and he kind of made himself into a real pitcher. So... He's a not not a horrible second piece, but lower value, 27, not a huge prospect. Uh, so 0.7 million in trade value. So this one was rejected initially uh, because of the value gap there, you know, 17 versus 11. Uh, but as John explained, there was the extra $4 million in draft pick value on Bassett's side. If you pull that out, then it's accepted. It's 13 to 11. And then even further, if you uh, make those pitching adjustments, I'm trying to pull up the document right now. Um, if you, if you bump up all or a little bit, like we were talking about for some of those lower ranked pitching prospects, um, it gets even a little bit closer. Um, and, and there has been a wide range of reports on Ginn. Some people really like him. And so, you know, if you, if you just see that the A's are presumably one of those teams that really like him, then this deal looks perfectly fair. Yeah, and and by the way, we're not changing our sort of historic numbers. We're leaving them way right. the way they were on the site. We're just noting that going forward, it would be closer if it were if, you know, hypothetically if it happened tomorrow, it would be 13 against 12 or something like that. So, uh, so it's a fair deal, and it seems to match kind of the team needs for both sides. I think the the Mets clearly needed like a number three starter behind their their two aces. Um, the A's obviously are rebuilding, and we're going to talk more about the A's in general, about sort of, you know, how much leverage they have in general, having sort of announced to the world that they were sellers. Um, so, you know, anyone expecting an overpay may be a little bit disappointed if you're an A's fan, but I think this was a fair deal. I think Ginn has legit, like, number two upside. You know, he's he had Tommy John surgery. He came back okay. Um, so... Um, but he, he has been, you know, pretty consistently r- ranked high in, in some of the prospect lists. And, um, you know, he, he was considered, I think because of the Tommy John surgery, he fell to the second round, if I'm not mistaken, but he would have been a first round talent otherwise. And so the A's tend to like that kind of guy with upside where they sort of buy low. Um, they don't seem to be too scared off by TJS. So fits their model. Yeah, that's definitely been a trend of theirs and we'll see it. Um, 
in a later deal as well. Uh, but they, they like these former first, second round talents that are coming off of injury. That's what Jesus Lazardo was as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I guarantee there's another name or two that I'm, <laughs> that I'm blanking from my memory, but they, you're right. They, they typically don't care as much about that. Maybe they trust their, uh, their rehab staff, their, their medical team to, to get these guys back to top shape, or maybe they just see kind of an inefficiency there that, Tommy John has become such a successful procedure and maybe teams aren't fully accounting for that. Maybe they're, they're adding a little bit more risk than the A's want to there, but uh, yeah, yeah, and I I definitely see the upside here. Yeah. And to be fair, we're aware that the success rate for Tommy John is about 80%. In other words, 80% of pitchers who have it tend to come back just fine. 20%. Maybe not fine. And so, you know, one of our most popular and active users, uh, Grover, who's an A's fan, uh, has been complaining about this because he's really sort of not in favor of the A's trading for injured players. But they do tend to, they do tend to do that. So, um, you know, it is what it is. The one thing that that 80-20, I don't think it misses it, but it might just kind of underappreciate it under, uh, I don't know what word I'm looking for here. <laughs> um is that there's also, you know, once you've had one Tommy John, if you have another one, it gets a lot darker. Yeah. Um, so so even if you are one of those 80% that's pretty successful, if you re-injure yourself, things get really shady from there. So maybe there's less uh, less room on that end of things. But Right. right. Yeah. One is fine, two is bad. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next deal. This is where things start to get a little bit weird. This was when the Twins picked <laughs> up Sonny Gray. <laughs> so the Twins picked up Sonny Gray, uh, who we had at 28.3 in median trade value, as well as Francisco Peguero. So they got a nice little extra sweetener in here. Uh, right, another right-handed pitcher prospect at, at 0.1 million from the Reds in exchange for Chase Petty at 4.8 million. And that was it. So very yes. clearly rejected, very clearly <laughs> an underpay on the Twins side of this. Chase Petty was their first round pick, but, you know, he was a later first round pick and a whole lot of relief risk. High school pitcher who throws 100 miles an hour. We've all kind of heard the story before for every one of those guys that turns into the next Jacob deGrom or whoever. There's a thousand of them that are either a decent reliever or completely flame out early on. And that's not to minimize it and just say that we should treat every one of these guys like just a lottery ticket, because I mean, Petty was a first round pick and there's a lot of people who really like him as a prospect. Um, One of them being Kylie McDaniel, who kind of tweeted out that he's a pretty similar prospect to JT Ginn, but he slightly prefers Petty. Um, so, So there's, there's kind of a wide range here and you could say that we're, that maybe our model is a little lower on Petty than it should be. But even still, Gray, we feel pretty confident that he's at 28.3 million, that that's accurate. He's projected for two and a half wins this year. He's got two years of team control, so it's roughly five wins over the course of those two years. And his contract is not that expensive. He's not getting overpaid here. It's it's nothing... We don't see any reason that he should have <laughs> gone this light other than i guess the reds just made a weird trade they're trying to they they made it pretty clear early on that they're trying to get out from all of under this salary and maybe they lose a little leverage there for whatever it's worth or maybe they're just really undervaluing gray overvaluing petty whatever the case may be we we feel pretty confident that as a lot of people kind of thought at the time you know it's always nice when the values 
even if they are off like this, it's always nice when they're kind of validated by public opinion. And public opinion at the time was, yeah, the Twins got a steal here, and, and the values agree with that, and I tend to agree as well. Yeah, so in my view, there's, well, first of all, there's always an outlier, right? There's always one that breaks the model, like, ah, and, and th this is the one. Um, and so, you know, look, it's the one, it's the exception that proves the rule. So, um, it, you know, it, I, I scratch my head about it, but there's really only, if you're a reasonable person, there's really only three explanations. You know, one, we're too high on gray, two, we're too low on petty, or three, the reds made a bad deal. So let's take each one of those points one at a time. One, we're too we're too high on gray. Um, one of our users, Matt Swinky, said, "Yeah, I think you were too high." My gut says he's, you know, there's some weird vibe I get where people don't value him as much. I'm like, "What are you basing that on?" And like, eh, it's just a vibe. Well, our model's not based on feelings or vibes. Our model is based very data driven. And so I responded with, "Okay, let's compare gray to Marcus Stroman." Last three years, F4, Stroman, 8.7, Gray, 8.6, which would have been higher if 2020 had been a full season. Steamer projection for 2022, Stroman, 2.3, Gray, 2.5. So very similar pictures, very similar numbers. Total salaries for next two seasons, Stroman set to make $50 million, Gray set to make $22 million. So there's a gap there of 28, hence our value. Not sure why, the Cubs would be paying $50 million for the next two years for Marcus Stroman, but nobody wants some Sonny Gray if, if Matt's theory is correct. Unless there's something we don't know, unless there's some sort of nagging injury or something else we don't know. Yes, I know he didn't he didn't succeed in New York, and there's a, perhaps a narrative that says, oh, you know, he's not the type of – he's not a big big city pitcher or whatever. I – you know, he's he's had plenty of success before and after and even while and to some degree in New York. And he had very a lot of success in Cincinnati. So I'm not buying that. Two, we're too low on Petty. Well, OK, I responded to another comment that said, oh, you guys are too low on Petty because, you know, he was a first round pick. And, and so on, and you undervalue youth. So I was, you know, as you pointed out, first round pitchers out of high school who are drafted in the first round are the highest risk category of any. And so here's a few examples. I did some research on this of high school pitchers who were taken in the first round, going back to 2012, about 10 years ago. Nick Travieso, Cole Stewart, Phil Bickford, Brady Aiken, Tyler Kolek, Cody Medeiros, Grant Holmes, Ash Russell, Mike Nickerak, Bo Burrows, Riley Pint. I could go on. <laughs> They've all busted. The only success story so far uh, and I went from 2012 to 16, is Ian Anderson of the Braves. So I'll give you one. So that's about a 90% bust rate against one success. I'm sorry, but this is a very, very risky proposition. No matter how hard he throws, he's a kid. So to give up that much value for a kid, it leads me to speculate that it's really the third reason, which is, you know, the Reds basically broadcast to the market that they're you know, they were in sell mode. They had to get the budget down. They were clearly under pressure from the owner to do so. And so everyone said, okay, here's our best offer. And they all lowballed them and they took the upside of Petty. And I think that's all it is. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's, I, I just still don't get it. I mean, I mean, I get it. I get it, but I, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Reds, figure it out. I, I expected... So much more, you know, especially when you talk about the market that we're in right now and just how desperate everybody is for starting pitching. One thing that I, I think maybe we can get to on a later episode or something uh, well, I want to discuss at length is 
more teams seem like they're going for it right now than usual. I mean, how many teams can you just fully count out right now? Like, I guess it's it's the Reds and the A's, the Pirates, the D-backs, um, the Orioles still, yeah. But beyond them, it seems like everybody's at least kind of trying or pretending to try. And so that just means that, you know, if, if there's all these other teams that need to fill out a five-man rotation and most of them don't already have that going into the offseason, then there's just going to be so much more competition for the guys who are out there and and – there weren't a whole lot of them left and you'd think the reds should have been able to capitalize on that. And I mean, they still have an opportunity to, uh, it seems like they're holding on to Tyler Maley and Luis Castillo for now, but if things continue to go in the direction that they are for the reds, those guys will be on the move at the deadline or next off season, whatever. Maybe they think they can capitalize at the deadline. Um, yeah, I, I really just thought gray would be one of the, I, I don't want to, I don't want to oversell it and call him, you know, like the prize of the offseason because he's very clearly not. He might be one of the 10 or 15 best pitchers to change teams this this offseason. He's not in the top five or anything, but he's still a really quality arm. And even if you take the Yankees out of it because of, you know, the optics of, of him heading back there, there's still so many teams that need pitching. And it's just wild to me that <laughs> that this is all he went for. I, mm. I don't. Mm. Yeah, I, I still can't can't get over it. Yeah. Okay, well, not everything is rational. <laughs> yes, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> All right, let's move on to, let's start to wrap up the twins here. With this one really broke my brain for a little bit. This one was also one of those that broke kind of late at night, and I just sat there scratching my head. I, I have it. In, I told you I had like the notes on my phone with all the free agent signings and all the trades, and I just have it in my phone as Donaldson with like 12 question marks after it. <laughs> so the Yankees acquired third baseman Josh Donaldson, who we had at negative 19.1 million in median trade value, as well as Kiner Falefa, who again we had at 8.5, and catcher Ben Rortvet at 2.6 million from the Twins in exchange for third baseman Gio Urshela at 3.2. And catcher Gary Sanchez, uh, who we had at zero as, as a non-tender candidate. So this was an overpay by the Yankees. Uh, at the time, we had it as negative $8 million headed to the Yankees and $3.2 million, positive $3.2 million headed to the Twins. Uh, they The Yankees took on Donaldson's entire contract, which had $50 million remaining on it. Uh, there was no cash exchange at all in this deal, so... A lot of it moving moving both directions. I don't have the tally pulled up right now about how much went each way, but it was $50 million for Donaldson, a, a little bit um, on Kiner Falefa's contract, and then uh, Sanchez and Urshela both had moderate uh, arbitration estimates that they'll, they'll be earning. But this one kind of shook baseball for a minute because you know the Yankees spent all offseason being connected to Carlos Correa and... Corey Seager before he signed and Freddie Freeman, which we'll be getting to shortly. Um, and they're connected to all these big free agent names. And then it looks like the way that they've decided to spend their money is grabbing a couple years of old, somewhat injury prone, somewhat prickly clubhouse presence, Josh Donaldson and getting a glove only shortstop. And also deciding that they're comfortable rolling with a Ben Rortvet, Kyle Higashioka platoon behind the plate. So this one was a really weird one <laughs> on the Yankees side of things, but even it was just as weird for the Twins because they just got Kiner Falefa as their shortstop. You know, they they don't like Polanco there. 
He's a second baseman. He was staying there. Royce Lewis missed all of last year with an ACL injury. He's not going to be ready. They don't like Nick Gordon at the position. Um, Andleton Simmons played there in 2021, but he was kind of bad, and he left as a free agent anyway. So no shortstop in sight in Minnesota. And you figure, okay, they gave up a catcher. They're happy with Ryan Jeffers and Ben Rortvet as their platoon behind the plate, a couple of young guys with, with some intrigue down there, especially Jeffers. And now they're going to take this glove guy, Kiner Falefa, at shortstop. Makes sense. The rest of their offense is really good. They can afford to have this glove guy. And then 24, 36 hours later, he's gone. And they got they, they went from Donaldson to Urshela at third base, picked up Gary Sanchez. He's apparently going to see some time at DH probably, sometime behind the plate. Just a weird, like, how did this come up kind of trade, you know? Like... <laughs> Like, like a lot of these are, are pretty sensical. Like, even going back to the Sonny Gray trade, you can see how the Twins say, okay, we need starting pitching. Let's reach out to the Reds. And they say, hi, Reds, we, we want Sonny Gray. What are, you, what are you talking for him? And then the Reds say, we like this prospect, and they make it happen. How did this one come to be? I, uh, <laughs> it, it hurts me a little bit. I, I understand it now, and knowing what we know now, it's really just like, the second step in a masterclass offseason by the Minnesota Twins, which mm-hmm. we will get to very shortly, I promise. But at the time, it, it, it broke me, John. <laughs> yeah, so I think the key, the first key to this is Donaldson. Um, I think from the Twins' point of view, they wanted to get out from under his contract because they're smart guys. He's 36 years old. He's still owed $50 million. He's been injured a lot, got nagging calf i can tell you as someone who has had nagging calf injuries and had some athletic endeavors these things never go away there especially as you get older you know uh, injury is previous injury is the best predictor of future injury and as you get older they just they don't ever heal they you just sort of manage through it and so um they know this and and so that's why our value um might have been lower than you think it's yes we know donaldson is a still a terrific hitter and probably still plays a decent third base but he's he's got such injury risk and aging curves are gonna he's, he's already in decline he's not the same player as he was a few years ago so you know you're dealing with a declining highly risky asset here um so that's the first point and so the twins wanted to get out from under that the yankees just wanted the sort of offense i think that he can provide and they're taking the risk of okay we'll take the risk of the injury and we'll take the money and um so that was the first sort of okay aha moment that they agreed both sides agreed to do that um the the rest of it was like okay kind of for left now this is very consistent with what the yankees have been saying they love anthony volpe that they and they've also got peraza so they've got two shortstop candidates for their future and they've been saying all along they don't want to make a big move on shortstop. They they prefer a stopgap, and they just didn't. It wasn't clear which stopgap that was. Now it is. They got Kiner Falefa as their stopgap. He's got two years of control, you know, decent glove. Okay, fine. Batting batting ninth in the order. He's their stopgap. Um, so that makes sense. And Rorvet, you know, is a defense first catcher as well, which is a from their point of view welcome change from the brick glove that has been Gary Sanchez, who needed a change of scenery. Um, so, you know, I get it from the Yankees side. I get the moving of Donaldson's contract from the from the twin side. Um, you know, I think Urshela is a nice fit uh, at third to replace Donaldson um, for the twins. Um, 
and we'll see, you know, maybe they, you know, they like to hit home runs in, in, in Minnesota and Sanchez can at least do that. Um, so pair him with a, a better defensive catcher, if I'm not mistaken, in Jeffers and, and give him a shot. So, okay, I can see, it. I think the framework is fine. I think the numbers are, are somewhat flexible depending on how you see Donaldson, but the rest of it, I think the framework is fine. Yeah, I've obviously, even before more recent developments, I came around on this one pretty quickly, just at the time. It was like, I, what? Like, <laughs> what? Yeah. yeah. Um, Donaldson fits into this class of hitter for me. Uh, I, I put Joey Votto and J.D. Martinez and Nelson Cruz, and they're just these guys who are always going to hit to me. Like they're they're gonna they're gonna be a good hitter until they decide they're done playing baseball. Basically, like I I think they're just supremely smart, talented hitters that you know even as their bodies kind of deteriorate, they they can figure it out. So I I like his ability to age at least on the offensive standpoint. And there is an argument to be obviously Josh Donaldson is no Iron Man. Uh, but there is an argument to be made that maybe the injury thing could be a little overblown. You know, he his last two, 2019 and 2021, the last two 162-game seasons, he played most of those seasons. I, I believe it was like 140 games-ish in each of them, which is still a chunk of games that he missed. And and as you mentioned, the biggest predictor of, fu- of future injury is past injury. So it's something that could very easily be re-aggravated again and even be more significant down the line. So it's not to say that there is no injury risk here, but it's also not that this is a guy, this isn't Mitch Garver who has only paid, played 60 or 80 games each of the last few seasons. This is, he's on the field as much as he can. (laughs) And last season that did include a lot of DH time to kind of keep him healthy. And, you know, you, you wonder if the Yankees have the flexibility to make that happen as much as they might need to. Uh, but they also have a little bit more depth, and they can they can weather the storm if he is out for a couple weeks there um, with some of their younger players. Um, but yeah, I <clears throat> I, I think at, at the time we might have I don't, a lot of people underrated the uh, the importance for the Twins of getting out from under that money and, and what kind of immediate impact it might have. I don't think anybody saw it having the immediate impact it ended up having. Um, but I, I also want to just use this opportunity before we talk about the big, big twins move to kind of push back on the general twins narrative here. And I, I have, I will acknowledge a little bit of pro twins bias. Uh, my roommate for all four years of college was a big twins fan. And so I've grown to follow the team moderately closely and I liked them and, and I was shocked that they were so bad in 2021. I, I had high hopes for them. But people have been talking about about this move, about Sonny Gray, about some of the other names they had been linked to. Uh, they were heavily linked in the Trevor Story market, and everyone was kind of thinking, oh, that's what they're doing with this money. That's the big one that's going to drop next. Um, and people were surprised by that. It's like you told them that the Orioles were going to sign Trevor Story or, or Carlos Correa, which which was another wild rumor that came out for a while. Um but the, the Twins are, are none of those things. The, the Twins were a really solid team in 2020 and in 2019, and they just had a weird off year in 2021. A lot of guys got hurt. A lot of guys just didn't quite perform, but they're still a really talented team. You know, their farm is pretty strong, yeah, like, like a rebuilding clubs would be, but their major league team isn't bad. I mean, Jorge Polanco, Byron Buxton, they're both in their prime. 
they got a bunch of other I don't want to say role players but smaller smaller names Luisa Reyes is very fun to watch very good Miguel Sano has a lot of power uh, Alex Kirilov and Trevor Larnock are two big big name prospects who kind of got their first taste of the big leagues in 2021 and you expect them to take a step forward this year they have a good foundation of a team going and it's not one like if you are the twins before before all these moves if you put yourself in their shoes what are they going to do this offseason they don't have any traditional pieces to sell really they're not they don't want to trade polanco and buxton because those guys are young they just extended buxton they're young talented and, and locked up for a while those guys don't make sense as trade chips so what else are you going to do are you just going to sit around and wait for your prospects to get ready i don't think that's a smart move. I think it's it's smarter to instead, you know, lightly push some chips in. And they did it mostly monetarily. The the biggest prspects they traded were Petty, who we've already discussed why he's not a giant prospect or anything, and then Rortvet, who was from a position of strength. Those are the biggest names that they've traded so far. Other than that, they've just spent a lot of reallocated a lot of money and and some big league talents to put themselves in a better position. I'd argue now and in the medium to long term and that's before getting to this big last move that they made and before getting to potential future moves that they could make so i i want to push back on kind of the narrative that the twins came out of nowhere and they're doing this irrational weird thing because i i think they're in a really good spot and and i am am pleased with the moves that they've made yeah i don't i i yeah, they're not irrational at all. They're very rational. They're very smart guys. Um, so, and you know, but they don't signal their intentions to the market, which is the best way to play it. They're good poker players. So, um, and and I do appreciate the fact that they look at last year as a blip and not a trend. You know, they said, okay. I mean, I think they had some injury issues, um, but they had a really good team. They were in the playoffs the years before that. So, I think they're going back to okay. Let's mean revert to being a good team again and let's push it a little farther and see how far we can get with, you know, as you mentioned, Buxton, Polanco in their prime. And I think they need another pitcher. And there's obviously rumors floating around about that. Um, but I think they're, I mean, once they get that, I, I think they'll be dangerous. And I appreciate the fact that they made some chess moves to get there. 100%. Uh, are we going to talk about their, if we're going to the chess analogy, what is this? Is this their checkmate? Is that what we call this big one? I don't know. I haven't played chess in a long time. <laughs> uh, they, the twins signed Carlos Correa, John. The oh, twins really? signed Carlos Correa. <laughs> yeah, that a lot of While people woke up to that. Yeah, <laughs> including John. Uh, I am fortunate enough to be in Arizona, and with the recent daylight saving time, uh, now I am back linked up on Pacific time. It's it's a it's a silly game we play here in Arizona. As a side note, I saw there was that legislation that went through the Senate to end daylight say or permanent daylight saving i think it is and so we're all we, we don't do any of this time change nonsense i am all for that let's <laughs> let's please i'm sick of having to remember whether i am an hour off of california or whether i'm two or three hours off of john it's it's a whole mess <laughs> side tangent over <laughs> i'm i'm on the west coast time zone and so i was awake at the wee hours of the night when this news broke from Mark Berman of Fox 26 in Houston, who not somebody I had ever heard of before, but he had the blue check mark and everyone was blowing up this tweet that the twins have signed Carlos Correa to a three year, $105.3 million contract. And I'm just refreshing Twitter constantly waiting for, come on, like I need someone. And of course, Bob Nightingale is the first one to like confirm it. 
And it's like, all right, what does that mean to me? I'm going to take that with the biggest grain of salt in the world. And then finally, somebody woke up Jeff Passan and he confirmed it. And it's still still bizarre. It's still hard to process. Uh, A lot of people linked Trevor's story there because it seems like Story's market hasn't quite developed the way he wanted to. And you figured whether it was a shorter or a longer term deal, the Twins needed a shortstop. They have the money after moving Donaldson. Story made a lot of sense, but it kind of seemed like a foregone conclusion that Correa would get his big contract and that it would probably be with the Astros. There was a lot of talks there in the last couple of weeks, a lot of rumors and, and you know, some players tweeting some things out, Martin Maldonado being one of them. And then just out of nowhere with, with no real inkling of a rumor that Correa is interested in a shorter term deal other than just, you know, speculation as far as I had seen, he agrees to this one and it's a three year, $105.3 million contract which gives him the record AAV for an infielder at 35.1 million, just barely beats out Anthony Rendon's 35 million. So he guarantees that record right there, which is something that players care a lot about, um, whether for themselves or for the union or or whatever the case may be. Uh, But importantly, most importantly, the deal has opt-outs after each season. So it's a little bit reminiscent of the Trevor Bauer deal that he signed last year. Um, And it seems pretty likely that unless he's hurt or just underperforms like crazy, it seems pretty likely he'll opt out after the first year and in a normal off season, he'll try again. And especially, you know, a nice little thing here. He doesn't have the qualifying offer next year uh, because uh, even, even if the qualifying offer did remain, you can only receive a qualifying offer once. That was one of the more recent CBA changes before this whole mess (laughs) this off season. Um, so no matter what happens, he won't have, if, if he hits the free agent market again, he will not have the qualifying offer attached to him, which is a nice little help, but it seems pretty likely that he'll be able to take advantage of a normal off season and try again to get that big contract, um, that just wasn't there for him this off season because of how things ended up going. Um, but yeah, for now, at least the twins have a superstar shortstop at, for for this season. And all it really cost them was money and, and a draft pick. And it's it's cool. <laughs> it's fun. I wish that a team... I, I, I don't mean specifically, and, and maybe this isn't the direction to go with this, but I wish we saw more teams doing things like this. I wish Cleveland had been more aggressive this offseason. We talked a lot about them heading into this offseason and all the prospects they had and all the moves they could make, and they really haven't done anything. I wish a team like them was, was more aggressive. We, we've seen the Tigers kind of starting to push some money in. Um, but the, the, the twins are not just taking it for granted that the White Sox are going to win the, the central. They're pushing in right now and it's fun to see. And, and I, I want to get your take first on just like immediate reaction to the deal and, and what you think of it now that, you know, that, that immediate shock has kind of worn off as well as what you think of it from the value standpoint, from Correa's perspective, um, if it was a smart move on his part, et cetera. So um, I love it. So first off, uh, I have a soft spot for the twins as well. I got married in Minneapolis. My wife is from Minnesota. All her family and friends are from are twins fans. So I have a little connection that way. But there's no bias there. But anyway, happy for them. Um, it they needed a kind of a jolt of excitement on that franchise after last year's down year, and now they got it. But looking at the values, um, it's a really good deal for both Korea and 
the twins. And now how could that be, you say? Okay, well, um, we have a fair value at basically a $45 million AAV for the next three years or close enough. 134 and he's getting 105. So if he were to play all three years, the twins would get a really good deal because uh, he's got like 29 million in surplus value. Now, obviously, um, that comes with a catch and the catch is he can opt out on any one of those years. So if it goes by the book, and he has a normal year where he puts a 45 million in value, he's going to opt out because he's going to think, okay, well, I'm underpaid at 35. So he's going to opt out. In that scenario, he wins because, as you pointed out, at that point, he doesn't have the QO anymore and he can get a, better, a bigger contract. So this is, in effect, a one year pillow contract if he plays according to the book. Uh, and, you know, everybody gets good, you know, twins have a good superstar shortstop. He plays well, everybody's happy. Now, if he doesn't play well or if he gets injured, now, let's say his projections for the next two years are under that mark of 35.1 per. Well, he still gets paid. He wouldn't opt out. <clears throat> now, the downside is the twins take on more risk, but they also got that first year surplus. So it kind of evens out. So in a weird way, everybody wins here. I, I love this deal. And I think it's one of the more creative ones that Scott Boris has put together. Um, and I think we might see more of that. And I don't know why other teams might not consider doing something like this, but um, it is definitely a win-win. It's especially shocking that a team like the Yankees wasn't in on something like this because it seems like it. And obviously there's so much we don't know about how they feel about Correa, the whole sign-stealing thing, how he feels about them, whatever. We don't know if maybe he had a higher bar for them to clear if he was going to join the Yankees or they needed a special bargain, whatever the case was. But you'd think that this something like this would have worked perfectly for them because their whole thing was that they have Anthony Volpe on the way and they just love him to death and they don't want to block the position for him. Well, something like this doesn't block a position for anyone. Um, and then the other underrated aspect of this that I've seen mentioned here and there, but I think it's pretty huge, is that completely mitigating risk here for Minnesota is that if they are bad as a team, if they disappoint again, and Correa's even if he's just having a normal season, a fine season, not another great year like he did in 2021, but even if he's just like a pretty good shortstop, that's such a tradable contract. Like if you, you're pretty sure he's going to opt out because even, even if he's having just, you know, above average, you know, on pace for a five win season or something like that, you figure he'd rather have a long-term thing than just going year to year for these next two years. So it seems like a fairly likely opt out. So as long as he's having a decent year, that that's such a big piece to be able to trade. And, you know, even if you're the twins, maybe you eat a little bit of that money that's on it and, and get a really nice prospect better than whoever you would have been able to draft with the, the pick you're giving up. for. Yeah. Somebody. Yeah. And that's a good point. And that's why you'll see on our site, we've updated it. Um, we have him listed as only one year of control because we recognize that, you know, he's things going according to plan. He would opt out. Uh, but to your point, you know, um, in that one year, we've given a little bit of a bump for marketability and sort of attractiveness. So he basically has 15 million in surplus. Um, now, if you can prorate that to pretend it's July 31st and we're at the deadline, you've got two months left, maybe an extra bonus month for the playoffs if, if a team wants to, to go for it. You're going to get a nice prospect, you know, in the 10 to 15 ish range, I think, at that point. And so, uh, yeah. Absolutely. They've got some surplus value to play with, even if they're out of it. Yeah. So just absolutely love it. I I don't know what else can even be said here. It's I'm shocked that other teams weren't on this. I guess 
I guess maybe they were, and maybe he just liked that fit best. Maybe other teams wanted him to move off the position or or whatever the case may be. I'm really surprised nothing got done with Houston. Um, I, I think a lot of the big questions from this offseason can kind of be explained away by the lockout and just the weird nature of things, and we'll be getting to that with the next transaction that we talk about, actually. Um, but I, I just wanted to use this opportunity uh, what do you think is left for the Twins right now? Well, I mean, as I said earlier, they need pitching um, because their rotation was really like nothing. <laughs> you know, so they've got Sonny Gray, um, who they stole basically from from Cincinnati, according to anyone rational, I think. Um, and and um, I'm sorry, I'm looking at roster resources we talk about because I can't even think of it. You know, Bailey Ober. Um, did they sign anyone else? I can't remember. Dylan Bundy, number two. Oh, right, starter. Dylan Bundy. That's what I'm thinking of. <laughs> but, but okay. Imagine that everything's clicking and Correa's having a great year and they're in contention. They're battling the White Sox for a playoff spot. And their rotation, you know, they're looking forward to the playoffs. The rotation is Sonny Gray and Dylan Bundy. Who's your three? Bailey Ober, Joe Ryan, Randy Dobbeck. No, no. So they need, they need a third pitcher. And, and I think, you know, the two obvious ones on the market as we record this are, are Frankie Montaz and Sean Manaya of the A's. Manaya has one year of control. Uh, Montaz has two. I think the rumors are, you know, that they're more interested in Montaz, which I agree with because they need to think beyond just this year, but to next year as well, because they could potentially have Correa, obviously, as we just spoke about. And their whole sort of philosophy is to not just think in, in you know, immediate terms. So Montaz it is. Then that would mean giving up some more serious prospect capital because he's got that two years of control. So, you know, I really think they are a strong contender for, you know, him. Uh, but there's other teams that need starters as well, which we can get into. The Cardinals, the Yankees, there's, you know, the A's, I think, in a way, um, are sitting in a really nice position right now with two attractive starters when all the rest of the free agents have been picked over and these teams need one. And this is one of them. So if things go according to plan, they should get a nice package if they trade them to Minnesota. But I think that's the next move for the Twins. Yeah, shockingly. No even shred of anything yet while we're sitting here recording. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing yet. But it's really Montas, Manaya, and then, you know, Johnny Cueto's the free agent. Yeah. Fred Anderson. The, there, there's a little bit of rumbling that the Astros might shop around Jake Odorizzi. Did, did the yeah, Twins so want to get back in on that? I don't yeah. know. I, I've been banging the Montas drum since the beginning of the offseason, really. I've been even even before all this stuff. I thought Montas was a pretty good fit for them. I've been banging Montas, who we have like 39-ish in trade value. I think it's 39.6. Just off the top of my head, um, and I think that would make sense for a package around Austin Martin, who they picked up for Jose Barrios. We have him at like 26 or so. So Austin Martin and another piece or two. I've personally liked for both sides for a while now, and so I guess in the next day or two, hopefully we'll see whether that comes to pass or, or whatever, because the Twins have, as I mentioned, a pretty deep farm system, pretty solid one, you know, kind of middle of the pack. Um, they have a lot of arms that ended last season hurt, and so they need a little bit more time to kind of figure out what's there, maybe a year or two to bridge the gap, and so I think a guy like Montas perfectly fills that. As you mentioned, though, lots of competition there. Maybe with this most recent move, the Twins are more driven than a team like the Cardinals or the Yankees to push in that extra prospect or whatever because they say, okay, well, our window is suddenly right now because we might not have Carlos Correa anymore after the year. We need to get a guy. So I wonder if that's maybe the case. 
Uh, but I, I guess we'll have to see about that. Yeah. And so, they, you know, they've got a deep enough farm and even some guys who have sort of graduated like Trevor Larnock and the aforementioned Bay, Bailey Ober, um, you know, where they could kind of play around with some some possibilities there. Uh, I do think there's, you know, usually where there's smoke, there's fire. I think there's the A's have are probably scratching their things hmm. <laughs> and looking at that. Like, I think there's a potential deal there. Yeah. All right. Great transition. Let's talk about the A's and the biggest move that they've made. This one, <laughs> we're, we're slowly catching up to real life. Uh, thankfully, not not a lot of these trades happen near the beginning, so not a ton left here as we near the one hour and the hour and a half mark. Excuse me. Uh, so the Braves picked up Matt Olson from the A's. They had Olson at 43.3 million in median trade value. In exchange, the A's received catching prospect Shea Langoliers at 27.8, outfielder Christian Pache at 7.5, and right-handed pitchers Ryan Cusick at 5.4, and Joey Estes at 2.6. So this one was accepted by the model. It was almost perfect between the two sides, uh, obviously before any any other post-trade adjustments that we had to make, which it doesn't look like we did have to make any, um, other than other than that inflation that we mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, this looks pretty perfect on both sides. There was a whole mess of drama with this that we don't need to get <laughs> all the way into mm-hmm. the, um, the, the Braves, Freddie Freeman, Matt Olson mm-hmm. thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, I, I do want to mention kind of where those guys, what ended up happening with those guys, but first let's focus on the values and the return here. So it's, it's pretty even, as I said. Olsen at 43.3. Main piece heading back to Oakland is Langoliers, who's a glove first, almost MLB ready catcher with a lot of power. He's really, really reminiscent of current A's catcher, Sean Murphy. It's a very similar profile. Langoliers uh, a little bit more highly regarded than Murphy was as a prospect. Um, and, and probably another half season to a year until Langoliers is MLB ready. But he's really the prize here. He shows up kind of in the 60 to 90 range of a lot of, you know, top 100 prospect lists uh, league-wide. Uh, so he's the big guy. Pache, glove first outfielder, used to be much more valuable than this. Used to be heralded as, as you know, the next big thing in Atlanta. Uh, but there are some questions now about his hit tool. There always have been those questions, but uh, his 2021 wasn't the strongest offensive season, and it saw him when the when Ronald Acuna Jr. went down for the Braves, uh, instead of giving the role to Pache right out the gate, they went to Guillermo Heredia and some other Abraham less inspiring Monte. outfield <laughs> options. Yeah, so that that kind of tells you a little bit. It's kind of it's what we've referred to in the past. You know, the Franklin Barreto thing, the Luis Urias thing. Like if if a team has shown you that they don't believe in a guy, that should be pretty indicative of their vo- their value having fallen. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for Pache, he's at least got a pretty high floor here because the defense in center field is just superlative. And mm-hmm. even if he ends up carving out a career as, you know, a Juan Ligares for a few years, that's still a valuable player, even if even if the bat doesn't quite get to what it could be. But if he's a league average hitter, he's a stud. So whole wide range of outcomes for him. Mm-hmm. And then Cusick and Estes are... A couple of interesting lower minors pitchers. Um, I, I've been mixing them up a lot, so I'm going to try not to. I'm pretty sure Cusick is kind of more of a live arm, uh, more relief risk there. Estes is more of a back-end guy. Both of them in, I, I believe, like A-ball, high A, kind of that range. So a couple years off from the bigs. 
kind of just continuing what the A's have done in a lot of these moves of stockpiling some arms because their system was pretty shallow in them. So that's the full return. It's a pretty good return. It's definitely indicative of kind of the uh, bidding war that seemed to be happening in baseball for Olsen um, between the Dodgers, the Yankees, uh, the Rangers reportedly involved for a bit, Cleveland, uh, the Rays even checked in. So it's a, it's a very healthy package. The A's should be happy with it. And the Braves got their guy, who they almost immediately extended eight years, and I believe it was a hundred and was one hundred and sixty-eight or one hundred and eighty-six, one hundred sixty-eight. Yep. Okay. Uh, yep. Eight years, one hundred and sixty-eight million. And and I'll I'll pull up the while you talk, I'll pull up the numbers, and we can very briefly get into the whole Freeman side of it. But first, I yeah. want to get your take on on the trade and the players. Yeah, so I just want to say, you know, there were obviously a lot of rumors of Olsen to the Yankees, and I just never saw a great fit from the A's perspective because, you know, the Yankees didn't want to trade Volpe. They probably didn't want to trade Jason Dominguez. And so that had to have led the package with uh, Oswald Peraza, who is a glove first shortstop, and they already have a glove first shortstop in Nick Allen. So... You know, I'm sure the A's were thinking, I'm not sure that's kind of duplicative of what we already have. That's not the greatest lead piece. Now, you could argue that and they eventually turned to Langoliers, who is duplicative of Sean Murphy. Well, Murphy has four years left. Langoliers, when he comes up, will have six. And so he fits the timeline a little bit better. And, you know, the Braves just seemed like they had a lot more sort of to work with in terms of prospect packages than the Yankees did that made sense to the A's. So I'm not surprised that it ended up going to Atlanta for that reason. And I do like the return from the EA's perspective. Uh, it does obviously raise some questions about, you know, what's the future for Sean Murphy? Um, you know, I think he's probably, you know, going to be the A's catcher for this year. And then maybe they look to trade him next offseason, for example, when Langoliers is ready. Um, and then they'll have another trade chip. Um, so I do like this return as well. I think the 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 big question is, Pache, is he ever going to hit? You made all the points I was going to make in terms of the front office uh, sort of, you know, showing their hand there. Um, he's been just awful uh, when he's been called up to the major league levels, looked completely lost, you know, no, no plate discipline whatsoever. Um, you know, he apparently has some power, but even when he went back to AAA, he was just sort of average. So... You know, and one other sort of key point in his valuation here is he's only got one option left because he was added to the 40 a couple of years ago. So if he doesn't make it this year, he'll be out of options next year. And then that's kind of be the, the last chance for him. And if he doesn't hit there, then, you know, you're looking at a career journeyman, like a Juan Lagares, you know, uh, type of guy where he's just the glove first but can't hit. And those guys are kind of floating around. They're kind of a dime a dozen. So that's why his value is continuing to crater. He's got to hit in order to kind of turn that around um, and and do so quickly. So I think the A's are going to give him every chance to try to try to do that, especially with Ramon Laureano still on suspension. Pache will probably open the season as their starting center fielder. And uh, let's see if they can turn him around. Um, Cusick was a high draft pick. And so I think he's got a lot of upside, which the A's clearly like. So it's a great package for Olsen. And obviously he's from the Atlanta area. He signed the extension quickly. He's as happy as a clam. So personally, I'm happy for him. So all around, a good good trade in our model, good trade for everybody. Yeah, agreed on all points. I definitely don't want to get into the drama of the Freeman stuff. We don't have time for that. And even if we did, this is not the place for that. Mm-hmm. I do want to point out that i think he's the kind of guy that was if you if you read the reports from both sides about what happened there 
it seems like there was a fair bit of miscommunication or not not even miscommunication specifically but just lack of communication at times and i what i kind of come down to is that both sides both freeman and the braves kind of just did what they felt they had to do given the context of the lockout and everything that happened there i'm i feel somewhat confident that if not for the lockout they they might have been able to figure something out uh, if, if, if they, you know, took this like a normal free agency and were able to remain in discussions with him for over the course of a couple months and, and get something ironed out there. But just with the way things were, maybe they had a hard line that they weren't ready to move off of yet on his contract asks. I, I believe one of the big sticking points was five years versus six years. Um, so they, the Braves might have had that kind of hard point and they decided we can't sit around waiting for him to budge off of that. We spring training games start tomorrow. We we need to get our guy. We need to make sure we're going to be in a good spot when the season starts. And so they went ahead and pulled the trigger on Olsen. And it certainly helped that they were able to lock him up so quickly. Um, while we're here, might as well mention the Freeman stuff. He signs with the Dodgers. It's a six-year, $162 million deal, but with some deferrals. Um, that brings the real present value, according to John Heyman. It's 148.2. So... A little less than Olsen gets, but also two years less. And, you know, there's all the comparisons you can make. Olsen's younger, Freeman's a little bit more proven, so on and so forth. Um, I Right now, I don't think is the time to have this comparison discussion. We probably can at some point. There was a really interesting Simborski article on Fangraphs kind of comparing the two zip proje- projections long term and what kind of players they look like at the end of their deals. Uh, that would be kind of fun to take a look at, but... Uh, do you have anything else to add here on kind of the the Freeman of it all? Just on the valuation point, um, those deferrals are pretty significant and depends on what you use as kind of an inflation adjustment. You know, 57 million of his deal is deferred quite like well into the 2030s. And so if you just use a standard uh, 3% inflation adjustment, it takes the value of that contract down perhaps even farther. And then the fact that he's going to be playing uh, in California for the most part with the higher taxes. Um, I mean, he's from California, but he's taking a financial hit here. And so, and I'm sure he wants to win with the Dodgers. So he's got some ulterior motive reasons, I think, you know, being on a winner, being at home, uh, but not he's not getting as much money as perhaps he had, he had dreamed. And I think it's because, you know, he's getting older and aging curves are a thing. And I think Alex Anthopoulos made the right decision from a purely baseball standpoint uh, by going with the younger player in his prime. Um, and I think, uh, the Dodgers are putting a juggernaut together and you got to respect that as well. Yeah. And you can, last point I want to make here before we move on is, is there's been a lot said about kind of the baseball end of it of, Oh, you're paying Olsen basically the same money, but you also had to give up all these prospects. And I think there's a way that um, not to be reductive here. I mean, these, these prospects, regardless of what value they presently or in the near term had to the Braves, they clearly had some value across the league. And so you could make an argument of they should have signed Freeman and traded these guys for someone else. Like that's a perfectly fair argument, I think. Um, but just on a team specific level, we talked about Pache, how he might just be a glove and, and it's looking more and more like that. And like, there's a lot of pressure on him for the hit tool to work. So if you're the Braves and you don't think it will, then that's not a huge piece for you to give up. Um, that's a couple lower level pitchers. We talked about the risk involved in pitchers and 
neither of those guys are going to really break the bank for you to give up. And then Langoliers is the tough one, but they're fairly set at catcher the next couple of years. And catching prospects are almost as hit or miss as pitching prospects, where it's just such a demanding position physically that even when they do hit, like even, even when they are they do develop as prospects they do pan out sometimes the bat isn't quite what you'd like because they're just there's just so much else being asked of them so i think there's a defensible side of this as well for the specific prospects that the braves gave up that none of them were integral to their future although i like i said the opportunity was there to trade them for other important contributors if they did decide to bring freeman back fair point all right we have five trades left Two of them are a little bigger, and three of them should go pretty quick. So let's just jump right into them. The Mariners, if we're talking about weird trades here, Mariners acquired <laughs> outfielder Jesse Winker at $19.1 million and third baseman Eugenio Suarez at negative $8.9 million from the Reds. And again, no cash involved in this deal. In exchange for left-handed pitcher Brandon Williamson at 154 right-handed pitcher Justin Dunn at 4.5, and outfielder Jake Fraley at 2.7, as well as a player to be named later who some reports have uh, have noted is, is a prospect of no, no, no huge name, but someone with a little bit of value at least. Um, so we had this trade as an overpay by the Mariners. There's a lot that goes into that and a lot that has kind of that could be changed has changed whatever so i will let you take over from here john so we are um we noticed that um a eugenio suarez's uh, projections had changed with some of the more public projection systems from the time that we checked earlier in the off season don't know why they changed but they did and you know if now we're not going to change anything on our end um but um but they had upgraded him and so if that change were to be reflected in our model, this trade would look perfectly fair. Uh, but instead we have Suarez at negative value. So I'm not gonna, you know, um, make any issue with that. I'm just saying, you know, there's wiggle room there to make it a little bit closer. I think the framework is fine. Uh, some people think we were a little too low on Jesse Winker. Uh, I think it's fine. Uh, we do have sort of a DH sort of dollars per word discount that we use in our model for guys with his profile who are basically just sort of like mashers who can't play defense, um, you know. And so, you know, one could argue whether that's true or not. He also has very dramatic splits. He mashes righties, but really poor against lefties. And so he's essentially a platoon uh, corner guy slash dh guy so you know that's why um, public perception at first was very much oh the reds got fleeced because they are just dumping money they were trying to dump suarez's contract as well as winkers i think there was some merit to that but we said no actually the the reds actually made a good deal on this and then largely because of brandon williamson and then i noticed some tweets that oh actually you know, reds fans were like oh He's actually looking really good. And then the industry, according to Ken Rosenthal, said, oh, actually, most people in the industry thought the Reds made a good deal here. So I think we're justified that, okay, they're um, – so no matter how you kind of slice it, I think the framework is fine. The Reds did not get fleeced. I'll stand by that. I think the thing with this deal publicly is that there's just so many different ways to look at so many of the different players in here. Mm-hmm. Um Winker, you know, you can look at him and you see the big numbers and you just see like, wow, this guy's an offensive stud and he's not that expensive and he's got a few years of team control. How is this all you get for him? 
and it's very easy to overlook the defense and the platoon splits and etc. And, and I mean, it's clear that he's still a valuable player. He has a role on a good team like Seattle. And I, I believe it was pointed out that the AL West is looking particularly right-handed heavy this year. And so that is a point in his favor that he'll won't be as uh, subject to, you know, platoon split issues <laughs> potentially. Um, and I'm a big Jesse Winker fan. I think he's just a, a really fun hitter to watch, but you have to be able to acknowledge the limitations he has as a player. And just because he's really good at this one part of the game does not mean that he is overwhelmingly valuable. Um, but I, I, I see reason for kind of a wide array of valuation there. Same thing with Suarez, where there's going to be some people who say, oh, he hit almost 50 homers a couple years ago. And there's going to be other people who say, oh, well, he hit 170 and was a terrible defender last year. And it's just been such a violent swing that it's really, I mean, even even with our values based on like the steamer projections there that you mentioned, it's hard to tell whether he's a little bit above water, a little bit underwater, exactly what kind of thing to where to, where to place him in relation to his contract, which isn't overwhelmingly expensive, but if he continues to do what he did last year, it's an overpay. Um, so, so he's difficult to value. And then when you see that there's just one main pitching prospect and a couple of like role player types coming back to the Reds, I, I think, and especially with, you know, people are pretty low on Justin Dunn. Uh, he has a home run issue and that's definitely not going to get any better going to the Reds. So I, I see, I see the reasons that this one was pretty contentious and why some people would view it as a slam dunk for the, for the Mariners, why some people would view it as a nice deal by the Reds. Um, and especially within the context of the deal that the Reds had just made of giving Sonny Gray away for peanuts, I think you're kind of inclined to assume that that's what they're doing here. They're dumping salary again and just taking whatever they can get. So, um, yeah, I, I, I understand why the range of opinions is so wide, but I, I tend to agree with you that it's not a bad move by the Reds at all, and I think Brandon Williamson could develop pretty well for them. Yeah, and one other point, you know, fans don't care about money. They're just looking at what we would consider field value. Um, you know, good play- Oh, you know, Reds fans are thinking, oh, we gave away two good players, and we got a couple of role players and maybe a prospect you know that doesn't seem fair because they're not looking at the contract issues with suarez and all the things that go into surplus value so i totally get that the sentiment is always going to be from the fans perspective you know oh we traded two good players for what (laughs) you know but you know people in the industry are going to look at it more from a gm perspective and that's what we're doing as well absolutely all right, this is the last, I mean, there's there's a couple other interesting trades after this one. This is the last big one so far. I'm checking again and still no <laughs> movement on Manaya or Montas as of yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this deal, one I alluded to earlier, the Blue Jays acquired third baseman Matt Chapman, who we had at 24.1 in median trade value, from the Athletics in exchange for right-handed pitcher Gunnar Hogland at 9.3, Kevin Smith infielder at 4.7, and left-handed pitchers Zach Logue and zero, at 0.7 and Kirby Sneed at 0.3. This one was rejected by the model as an underpay by Toronto. There's a lot of really... You're, we're going to sound like a broken record uh, with, with some of the reasons that we have for this one being declined and, and how it looks kind of in retrospect. But uh, one of the biggest factors here is just that there wasn't a huge market for Matt Chapman. We kind of identified earlier that You know, the Phillies might have been a landing spot, but they couldn't really get something done. The Blue Jays made some sense. Uh, They had disappointing production at third base last year and could really use the defense there. They had a lot of defensive opportunities there in 2021. 
Uh, the Rays checked in. The Yankees showed a little bit of interest, but after their whole kind of Fleffen Donaldson move, theoretically that, that goes to zero. So there really just wasn't a lot to do with him. There weren't a lot of teams that were demanding him. And, you know, looking at this package, it's a lot of A's type guys that you could figure, you could see them going, all right, maybe this doesn't match up perfectly for us, but we're getting guys that we like, so we'll pull the trigger. I mean, it's it's Gunnar Hogland, who is very similarly in that in that same mold as JT Ginn, um, you know, just coming off of in, or still still rehabbing from 2021 Tommy John surgery. Uh, he'll be back probably mid-season, uh, but a former first-round pick. Uh, Kevin Smith, who's kind of a you know production over tools infield jack of all trades type that they like and and MLB ready, and then Zach Logue, almost MLB ready, you know, kind of innings eater. Again, numbers over tools type guy, and Kirby Snead, an interesting left-handed reliever. So all four of those guys are kind of fitting the A's mold of the kind of guys that they like. And so even after making kind of the adjustments that, that make sense to us on this deal, uh, there's, there's probably still a little bit of a gap between the two sides, but it, it, it makes sense still, in my opinion. It does. So we had assumed an overpay for Chapman, and that's our bad. Um we just didn't anticipate that there wouldn't be much of a market for him. Probably shouldn't have assumed an overpay. It seems like whenever we assume anything subjective, we it bites us. So, um, so the model actually said he was worth twenty one point nine. So we should have just stuck stuck with that. And then, um, you know, the the changes to the um, lower level pitching prospects that we mentioned earlier. If we had applied those, uh, Logue would have gone up a little bit. Sneak would have gone up a little bit. So this one, had those been in place, would have been more like 21.9 against like 17-ish. So reasonably close would have been accepted. Um, so having said that, um, yeah, I mean, we can't obviously ignore the fact that Chapman's coming off of kind of a downtrend, had the hip surgery. He's been striking out more. The offense has kind of gone down. Still a great glove. Um, but maybe that scared a few contenders away. Um, and, you know, I think you make the point that the, the A's tend to like, you know, this type of package, package. And so maybe they had a deal with the Phillies, but they didn't have the right player package types that they like. So, um, so and, you know, it's, you know, in the long term, you know, if like, say, two of these four guys kind of turn out, then it's not going to matter. You know, if let's say it's Hoglin and Smith and they go up from here, you're not going to quibble about a couple points, you know, at the time of the trade. So um, so this one, the framework, I think, is mostly fine. It's just a question of, yeah, we are probably, you know, I think the market undervalued Chapman a little bit based on some of those characteristics. But I think overall it's going to be OK. Yeah. And I mean, there's still plenty of room and and. <laughs> I even mentioned the the direct comparison here to the Josh Donaldson trade, you know, Oakland trading an all-star third baseman with multiple years of control, great defender, coming off a bit of a lower year, they're trading him to Toronto for a four-player package that isn't, you know, necessarily inspiring here. Uh, that didn't go too well for them the last time they tried it, but mm -hmm. worth worth noting here that Matt Chapman is no Josh Donaldson, at least not at the time that Donaldson was traded. Donaldson had four years of control and was coming off of even even as a bit of a down year for him. It was a much better season than Chapman is coming off of right now. And Chapman only has two years of control. Also worth noting that, you know, Alex Anthopoulos was in in uh, the it was running the Blue Jays at the time of the Donaldson trade. And it's uh, is it Shapiro right now? Uh -huh. Who am I? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Shapiro with the Blue Jays right now. So different regime. Um, so you can't just say, oh, the Blue Jays always fleece the A's when it's, you know, it's a different group of people running the team. Um, 
So I mean, there's some there's some fun comparisons to be drawn, and it and it's reminiscent and a little bit scary <laughs> in that way. Uh, but looking at it more rationally, yeah, it, it it makes sense. They were never gonna get some huge return. They were never gonna get you know Orelvis Martinez, mm-hmm. uh, who it seems like the Blue Jays are just crazy high on, kind of in their untouchable camp right now. They were never gonna get him for two years of Chapman coming off an injury and a, a poor offensive season, but. It, it seems like they got what they wanted. Yeah. All right. Now for these smaller moves, uh, Reds acquired left-handed pitcher Mike Miner at 1.9 million in median trade value, and Cash, which is reportedly 1.5 million, from the Royals in exchange for left-handed pitcher Amir Garrett, who we had at 0.0 million. Uh, had him as a non-tender candidate. It's accepted by the model as a minor overpay by Kansas City, which at the time was not not intended to be a pun. <laughs> oh, I get it. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so it's 1.9 plus the 1.5 cash. So 3.4 headed to the reds in minor and, and that money and then zero head to the Royals. But that's within our margin of error generally. And especially when we're talking about a relief pitcher here, you know, the error bars are a little bit wider there on mm-hmm. those types of guys. So it's, it's not perfectly even, but it's definitely reasonable. Definitely fits what both of these teams were looking for. The Royals went ahead and used that money to sign Zach Greinke, which was a really fun move by, on their part. Uh, so they get Garrett and Greinke out of this one, and the Reds kind of replace Wade Miley's spot in the rotation uh, early on in the offseason before the lockout. They waived him and let the, cl- the Cubs claim him for free, and people were really upset about that. Uh, but our values showed that he was a non-tender candidate. He was his like $10 million club option. I'm pretty sure it was given his age was not a lock to be, uh, to be accepted, to be exercised. That's the word I was looking for. <laughs> um, and he's getting up there, you know, you can't guarantee another strong season for him, especially since he kind of was beating his peripherals last year, but red still decided they want to pretend to be competitive, I think. <laughs> and they, they need some innings eaten. So they went out and got Mike minor and it didn't cost him a whole lot. So, I don't know if there's too much else to add here, but I'll let you say your piece. So um, first on the Amir Garrett side, we have his value at 2.3 and his salary is 2.2, which gives him just a tiny fraction of 0.1 surplus. But the thing that drags it down a little bit more is the fact that he's out of options. And so with relievers and given their volatility, he is coming off of a down season for him. You can't option him. So there's value to that, which is why we have him at zero. Um, it's a little bit surprising that having made so much about cutting budget, the Reds then went out and got a, a, a guy like Miner who's on a contract. Um, you know, but um, as you point out, you know, they needed to replace some of the things they lost. And I think the other thing that's getting lost here is that he's he's really a one-year commitment. Um, whereas, you know, you look at Suarez, they were trying to get a, you know, that's a multi-year commitment. Um, and, you know, even if you look at Winker, he was he has two years of control. His ARB salary is going to go up and up because he puts up you know good big numbers, and that tends to be valued by arbitration. So in other words, if you look at it from a longer term point of view, from the Reds' point of view, they're saving money in the long term by giving up um, you know those guys. And Miner is just a one year stopgap. So kind of makes sense from that point of view. Surprised me a little bit because I was thinking like everybody else was, oh, they're just slashing budget here and there. It's fire sale. But um, turns out, okay, they, they probably hit their rock bottom in terms of budget so they can afford a one-year guy. So, but it's a fair deal. Yeah, they made, it, it, it's, it's appropriate to approach the Reds with skepticism right now, I think. 
they made a big deal after making some of those trades that no we're not just cashing out right now we are going we're making these trades so we have the flexibility the financial flexibility to make other moves and those other moves ended up being this one and signing donovan solano to a one-year deal and signing colin moran to a one-year deal and that's it Mm-hmm. And I mean, you, you wonder if maybe, and maybe this is giving them too much credit, but maybe they had ideas of bringing Castellanos back and the market just got away from them or something, I guess. <laughs> but I I don't entirely buy that. I, I think that to, to an extent, you know, these aren't bad baseball moves, Solano, Moran, and, uh, and Minor. They aren't bad baseball moves. Each of those guys could bring a little bit of value. They have a productive role on a good team. And they could be flipped at the deadline if things don't work out. But I think it's also a little bit of an optics thing, you know, making sure they spend some of that money, but they're not not spending mm-hmm. as much as they would have if they kept those guys, if they kept Suarez and Winker and Gray. And they're not committing it to multi-year deals for any of these guys. So Yeah. And one final point, you know, Mike Miner seemed like such a Kansas City guy. So I was a little bit surprised when they traded him because he's already, you know, come back to them once or twice. So I guess it's business. Yep, suppose so. All right, two more. We've got the Padres acquired first baseman Luke Voigt at $3.1 million in median trade value from the Yankees in exchange for right-handed pitching prospect Justin Lang, Lange uh, at $1.7 million. Uh, pretty small trade, but it was, it was pretty necessary after the Yankees signed uh, Anthony Rizzo to a two-year deal, brought him back in. He's going to be their first baseman. Um so no spot for Voight, really no first base or DH spot, and it just didn't make sense to hang on to him. The Padres, on the other hand, they could use a first baseman or DH. They could use some thump in the lineup, especially after losing Tatis for a few months. And uh, Voight comes at a relatively low cost, both in terms of the prospect they gave up and in terms of salary. So pretty clean fit on both ends. Yeah, so um, Yankee Twitter you know, thought they were going to get a whole bunch for Voight, and they're thinking, oh, he was the home run champ, and so on. Well, you know, Chris Carter was a home run champ a couple of years ago, and he got DFA'd. You know, if you only have one skill, that's not enough to kind of justify a big valuation. Uh, so we had him pretty low, and then when I saw rumors around, like, oh, Brian Cashman's not getting the offers, you know, that are, he's getting lowballed on him, and I was like, okay, well, I'm not surprised. And so when this deal went down, I was not surprised either. Um, Yankee fans at first were like, oh, that's all he got. It was an eight-ball pitcher. And then after, after a while, it was like, okay, well, actually, he was a first-round draft pick, and he hits 102. So they were a little bit more excited about it. One other note is that Lang would also be one of those candidates to be upgraded in the change of our model. We had him at 1.7 at the time of the deal, but if he applied the change, he would be at 2.7. So it's a very fair deal. And if he does get flipped by the Yankees in another deal, and you see him at 2.7, that's why we're not trying to deceive anybody. Um, yeah, um, and, and somebody else has noted that a lot of sort of high draft pick pitchers have been going in this in this phase of the offseason, and I think so. If you add him to, you know, some of the other guys we've talked about so far, it does seem to some that you can point to some evidence that said, yeah, you know, first-round draft picks, uh, pitcher-wise, are a hot commodity these days. Um, but a lot of them have a lot of risk, and Lang is one of those as well. He had a really awful – he was only at, like, the complex, um, but but he couldn't find the strike zone. So he's got a lot of work to do, which is why his value is low. Speculatively, I wonder if there's something to it being that because of the lockout, uh, a lot of guys you, you don't have as recent of reports on, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, 
there were there were there's a whole thing about it which kind of in part led to the rule five draft being canceled but a whole thing about scouts not being let in to see um a lot of minor league workouts for teams and so i wonder if to some extent it's that and this is this could be absolutely nothing but (laughs) i wonder if it's to some extent that more recent draft picks everybody has seen them relatively recently Mm -hmm. and so and you figure if a guy was just drafted in june july what he's not gonna he's not gonna be a completely different guy now more often than not like his his report is going to be pretty similar at this point Mm -hmm. um so maybe it, it makes you trust who he is, who, who it makes you trust that you're trading for the guy that you're thinking you're trading for right. a little bit more than if it was someone else. I don't know. That that could just be pull it out of nowhere. It, it's a good point. I'm just to it. All right. Last one here. This is a really small one. Uh, Dodgers acquired right-handed pitcher slash outfielder. He's done a little bit of two-way stuff. Uh, Tanner Dodson at 0.4 million in median trade value from the Tampa Bay Rays in exchange for outfielder Luke Rayleigh at 0.0. Accepted by our model. I do see your notes on the back end, John, that both of those guys are a little bit different when you go through some of our our back end changes uh, that we've been discussing here, uh, but it's still an accepted trade. Yeah, it's still a small trade that would be fair either way, so there's no no point in it picking it. Um, it makes sense for both players, uh, both teams. Uh, Rayleigh just seems like a razy kind of guy. He's probably a platoon bat only from the right side, which is what they were looking for. They're probably thinking a little bit higher, but they got this one. Dodson seems expendable. And one other note here, I mentioned this in a comment. Um, Dodson was Rule 5 eligible, but they canceled the Rule 5 draft. So in effect, the Dodgers can see what they have in him for the whole season without risking him to the Rule 5 draft, whereas that wouldn't have been the case before. So in a way, it made him a little bit more attractive, I would imagine, uh, because if he doesn't work out fine, if he does, then they can add him to the 40 and they didn't, they didn't, uh, and the risk is removed. So it's an interesting sort of twist on this one. Definitely. And the other angle of this was Rayleigh being a 40-man casualty. Yeah. Um, so they could add Freddie Freeman to the roster. Right. All right, so we are almost at the two-hour mark. That is all the trades that have happened so far. Uh, we talked a little bit about Montas earlier. Uh, I just want to get your very quick take before we wrap up. Where do you think Montas, Manaya, and let's let's throw in Austin Meadows. There's been a little bit of Austin Meadows buzz lately. Where do you think those three end up if they uh, if they are traded? So a couple of days ago, I was thinking Manaya to the Cardinals because the Jack Flaherty news, he's going to be out for a bit. Um, they also lost Alex Reyes to injury. No surprise there because he's always injured. Um, so they need help on the pitching front. And the Cardinals are the type of person, type of team that would take a one-year flyer on Manaya, And he doesn't cost that much in prospect capital. So I could definitely see that happening Manaya to the Cardinals. We talked about Montas to the Twins. Uh, the Yankees apparently are also interested um i'll make the same point as i did with olsen to the yankees where i'm not sure the yays would like the particular package that the yankees would be offering because you know montaz's value is high almost as high as olsen's and so you're looking at a fairly similar package whereas as we talked about the twins i think have more flexibility more options and i think that may be um the a's might get a better deal though especially since they're just committed to korea and you know they're they're signaling that they're in win now mode so the a's might have a little bit leverage there they do have leverage in general now because as you mentioned the free agent market has been picked over in terms of starting pitching so these are the two and apparently the reds are holding back on you know uh castillo and molly so they're they're these are the two 
And so the, the A's are now in sort of a good spot to kind of take any offers. But those seem to be the most likely ones. Um, Austin Meadows, you know, and he's another guy um, that is sort of like Winker in that he, you know, he's a he hits righties really well, but he can't do much else. And so we have kind of a similar profile on him, you know, where he, you know, doesn't he's got some split issues and he's got some defensive issues so he's not going to generate the huge return that Rays fans may want um but somebody looking for a left-handed bat i'm not even sure who that is frankly i mean i should probably look at all the proposals and comments we have um but i'm not even sure where that makes the most sense and the padres maybe they need another outfield bat you know if you look at san diego you, you got to see from their perspective uh, the dodgers are a monster lineup the giants are still formidable so they that would be my guess i'll say san diego yeah that was kind of my thought with meadows it seems like he and conforto are going to have kind of a market overlap so mm-hmm. you know whoever gets conforto if there's another team that wanted him and missed out maybe they go grab meadows if, if the rays are willing to move him at that point so you know rangers maybe padres white Sox, even um yeah those, those I, I i would guess the the one of the Padres or Rangers gets Conforto and, and the other one maybe gets Meadows. Maybe throw the Guardians. Yeah, maybe throw the Guardians yeah. in there as well because they're always looking for another outfield bat. So, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but my, my main prediction there if we're talking Rays is that they finally get Kiermaier on the Phillies where he belongs and and maybe at that <laughs> point they feel fine with their money and they'll hang on to Meadows for now. I don't know. Yeah, um, that's been in the room yeah. so long. I'm, I'm sort of yeah. dubious it will actually happen, but we'll see. But yeah, I am on the same page with you on both Manaya and Montas. I think the Cardinals for Manaya and Twins for Montas are, are my spots, mm-hmm. uh, not to be boring or anything. Uh, I agree that the Yankees just don't seem to match up super well. And the, the other teams worth noting, I mean, the Dodgers probably not looking in that market anymore. They just signed Tyler Anderson. And so, you know, they, they I think have... They're done. Yeah, they, they, they don't necessarily have five guys that they can count on to get 30 starts from each. But at this point, Nobody does. <laughs> they they do have a list, 10 or 12 guys long, that they'll be comfortable starting games for them. And I, I don't think they need to give up significant talent to add to that. But yeah. other names that have been linked to them, the, the Guardians, uh, excuse me, not the Guardians, <laughs> the rest of the NL Central, uh, the Tigers, the Royals, and the White Sox. White Sox don't really have the prospect capital to get Montas. Nope. And, and they don't have a lot of options. Unless if, they if trade they Bond. Bond may be interested, yeah. but other than that, no. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's hard to see a deal there. The Tigers are probably okay now. It seems like they opted mm-hmm. for Michael Pineda instead of going for um, a big prospect expensive deal like that. Yeah, and I saw um, that Al Alvila basically told a journalist, hey, we're done. No. <laughs> we, yeah. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah, and, and there were reports that um, the Royals were still interested in Montas even after signing Granke, but I don't think the... I don't think that makes the most sense for them. It's going to cost a lot in trade capital, and mm-hmm. they're not close enough, I don't think. So, uh, uh, yeah, that kind of a rundown of the candidates that make sense. And so maybe you could argue that the A's don't have much of a bidding war here, and, and if these other teams are just kind of sending in you know, weaker offers or something, I don't know. Uh, but I would imagine that there's at least a few teams pushing pretty hard for these guys, and uh, they'll, they'll get close to their values, if not maybe touched over, maybe. Yeah. Uh, we'll have to see. Yep. All right, we did it. Yay! We got through all the trades. Well, like I said before, we'll we can get to um, free agent stuff that we missed and, and all kinds of other news in later episodes. But we really needed to just push through all these trades. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, uh, enjoy 
all of you <laughs> enjoy spring training enjoy baseball being back enjoy these last handful of transactions as we get closer to the regular season starting in a couple weeks uh do you have anything else to add john uh i will say you know the whole point of our side is to have fun and baseball mm-hmm. is fun and trying to figure out trades and where the people are uh, wherever we go is fun so it's springtime i'm in a good mood let's everybody just have fun agreed <laughs> all right that will do it for this week thank you all so much for listening if you have any comments or questions feel free to shoot us an email at baseballtradevalues at gmail.com or find us on twitter at baseball values also be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss an episode we'll be back in a couple weeks to break down more news and updates so until then stay safe and enjoy spring training thanks john thanks Josh.